Welcome back to the Entitled Opinion Podcast, hosted by myself, Al, and co-host Hunter. On this episode, we continue our investigation into John Kay's book, Other People's Money. At the very end of the episode, there is an appendix where I dive into some of the things that we weren't quite so sure about during the episode itself and provide some clarification. Now, we're very interested in getting feedback from all of our viewers, so check out our website, entitledopinion.com, or send us an email at entitledopinionpodcast at gmail.com. We have all kinds of social media, so get in touch with us any way you like and tell us what kind of content you would like to hear or just ask us questions about things you're not sure about. A special thanks to my friend Landon Fox for providing the music. I'll link to him in the show notes, but you can find him by typing in Landon Fox Music. He's got a Spotify, he's got YouTube. So thanks, Landon. And without further ado, let's dive right in. Hello, Alec. Hello, Hunter. We are in another episode of Entitled Opinion. And uh, what are we discussing today? We are on our third episode of reviewing the book, Other People's Money. And the subtitle for my version is The Real Business of Finance. Your subtitle is different. Yes, mine is Masters of the Universe or Servants of the People. So... Mine's a bit more of a tepid subtitle, um, a bit more of the English way. Yours is a bit more of the American way. American AF. That is the way. Written in 2015, copyrighted in 2015, uh, post-2008 financial crisis. And this chapter is titled Intermediation. Intermediation. So what does intermediation mean, my friend? What does that mean? That's a good question. So I have two definitions of it. I have the one that John Kay gave, and I have mm-hmm. one from the interwebs. The one that John Kay gave was in the form of a checklist. So what is a good, not only good intermediary, but a good financial intermediary? And so that is one that provides logistics, so delivering services from the producer to the consumer. It is one that identifies goods and services that consumers want and seek out the best and lowest cost producers. It ensures a reliable supply chain free of surpluses and shortages. And it provides information and advice to enable users to make good purchasing decisions. So John Kay said that it's basically something that does everything Walmart and Amazon does well. So it delivers all these goods to customers and the other things that we just mentioned. And then a quick internet definition is a is a financial intermediary is an institution or individual that serves as a middleman among diverse parties in order to facilitate financial transactions. So like banks, commercial banks, investment banks, stockbrokers, investment funds, and stock exchanges. Mm. So like when you buy a stock, I don't know what the process looks like. I just give... 
I don't know, TD Ameritrade money and they give me a stock. I don't know all the stuff that happens behind the scenes. I don't even know where to begin, to be honest. I imagine that it must be similar in principle to how a real estate deal goes down with the brokers involved. That's a good analogy. That's why uh, we should have David on here to explain that better again. I'm with it. Yeah, I want to talk to David again. Um, so, I don't know, I guess I could give a high-level summary of the chapter. So, it's called Intermediation. Yeah, get, get high. Get way up there, dude. Way up there. I'm getting high. And uh, he split it up into three sections, liquidity, diversification, and leverage. And I have definitions for those two. Liquidity. What is liquidity? It is the capacity of a supply chain to meet a sudden or exceptional demand without disruption. So two ways that you can achieve this is by maintaining stocks or by the temporary diversion of supplies from other uses. So right. and when, liquidity, and when they says when he says maintaining stocks, he means like a, the way a grocery store maintains the stocks. So the word stocks being independent from right. a equity shareholder in the financial market. Right. So holding holding inventory so that inventory. if yep. there's a surplus of demand, you can you have enough to deliver to folks. Yep. So that's liquidity. The other two are diversification diversification and leverage. Diversification, okay, what is it? Um, it is a risk management strategy that mixes a wide variety of investments within a portfolio. So a diversified portfolio contains a mix of distinct asset types and investment vehicles in an attempt to limit exposure to any single asset or risk. So it's the opposite of putting all your eggs in one basket. So in his, in his chapter, he, he gave a quote by Mark Twain, and he was being facetious, I think. And at the end of the quote, he says, put all your eggs in that one basket and then watch that basket. Because he argued right. that if you put all your eggs in a bunch of different baskets, then you're not paying attention to all the baskets. Yeah, your attention is divided. And so you're not able to watch them carefully. So in whether it's hard to tell whether or not Mark Twain was being sincere or facetious when he said, put all your eggs in one basket and then just make sure to carefully watch that basket. Um, I'm willing to bet that one John Kay and Mark Twain are sophisticated enough that to have been a sarcastic quote i would i would agree with that he's probably being facetious because who is so. who is always truthful in their writings probably not mark twain well uh, yeah the uh, inventor of tom sawyer probably not so the third one is leverage so i have two definitions here john's definition john k's definition Dr. K. A financial leverage, yes. I don't know if it's a doctor or not. But his definition sure he has to be. is... He has to be. Let's, hold on. Before you, He is a professor of economics at the London School of Economics. Probably a, a PhD. St. John's College, Oxford University. There's no way he's not a professor. Yeah, if, yeah he's got to have a PhD. Yeah. Are we going to call him Dr. K? I'm, let's call him Dr. K. Fucking Dr. K's definition of leverage is a means of adjusting the combination of risk and savings to meet the particular needs of borrowers and lenders. Okay. A means of adjusting the combination of risk and savings to meet the particular needs of borrowers, borrowers and lenders. Okay. I had to read that twice to make my brain catch up. And then there's also, he goes into how um, the proportion of a loan can be debt and equity based. So that's something we can get into a little bit later, but basically 
the less equity something has, the more um, leveraged it is, I believe. The more equity it has, the more leverage it is. No, less. The less equity it has, right. the more leverage. Yeah, the more debt you have, more it is leveraged. So yeah. that's that's a good segue into the next def, the internet definition. Investopedia.com is uh, leverage is an investment strategy of using borrowed money, specifically the use of various financial instruments or borrowed capital, to increase the potential return of investment. So you, you want to borrow funds to buy the assets, so to buy equity into assets. Mm. And that's so that makes sense. So liquidity, diversification, leverage, those are the three sections of this chapter titled so mediation. Real quick, there's actually, I think you missed the very first one. The very first subsection is called the role of the middleman, in which we get into mm -hmm. um, what is the role of agency, an agency in the aspect of having a person in between a buyer and a seller. Right. Well, I assumed that section was intermediate intermediation because that's kind of what it is another word for intermediation is middleman but yeah, i mean but you, want to, you want to start there you want to details yeah. in that one uh so a good intermediary a good middleman builds um trust they have uh, values related to uh integrity and they their interests are aligned with their client that they represent it would be a conflict of interest if their, uh, their profit were aligned with the other party. And so what we get into is with, with the uh, financialization is that some of these, I don't know, brokerages, hedge firms, banks, they started being on both sides of the deal, it seems like. So instead of just being a broker or a dealer, there were broker dealers so that they were able to make money no matter what. And that, and also they didn't have any skin in the game as far as the outcome so that their clients were the ones who were risking everything. Right. And they themselves were able to play with other people's money, hence the title of this book. And that's, that's what he describes and probably a lot of people describe as moral hazard. Yeah. All of the upside, but none of the downside. Exactly. Um, so the, that first section of the role of the middleman has to do largely with the ethics of people who get involved in, uh, in deals who aren't the buyer or the sellers themselves. And there's a very good role for the middle person. That intermediary can be a specialist that can help facilitate trade for, with buyers and sellers who aren't as familiar with the entire market. However, when a lot of the resources in that market or in that particular sub-economy are largely allocated, allocated to the intermediaries themselves rather than the end users, then the system is unbalanced and unstable and volatile. Right. I think the, the general trend I see in his in his writing here is that this financialization leads to systems that the people involved become so distanced from the, the original purpose of financialization and that's to efficiently allocate resources and add value to the economy and they get so far away from that purpose that mm -hmm. a lot of times it just kind of spins out of control 
and uh, and they, they have nothing to tie it down to the original purpose. And it becomes what we spoke about the last time we were talking about this book with Fabulous Fab and the intellectual masturbation of these financial tools where they, they're just having fun making money off of um, their management and, their, and making a role for themselves while other people, the ones who are putting their trust and their finances in these middlemen are the ones who suffer ultimately. Right. So they would be, Fabulous Fab would be a good uh, demonstration of someone who is a part of a bad intermediary organization. Yes. And uh, Dr. K, he brings up some good examples of bad intermediaries. Um, a doctor who asks you what kind of tests you want to run rather than saying, okay, I'm the experienced one. I know which tests to run and I'm going to run the cheaper and more easily accessible test rather than just running a whole bunch and getting a skim of the profits. Um, and then uh, he also says generally a bad intermediary is someone who adds complexity rather mm -hmm. than, than helping to manage the complexity. So a lawyer who t asks you what you want to do and puts the decision making back on your plate rather than saying, I know this space and I'm going to help move us forward is an example of a bad intermediary. Yeah. And so I have that, I have that written down. I noted that uh, definition also. It's, uh, he also says that is uh, someone who exaggerates their own skills mm -hmm. and our need for their services by imposing complexity on us. So, I mean, that's like exactly the definition of the guys who are creating these CDOs and, uh, you know, making money off this, this mortgage CDO that at the, that in the beginning they knew didn't add value and it was destined to lose. So that's someone who's in a position that knows what they're, can know what they're doing, but they purposely don't do make something that works to their own benefit at the expense of, I guess, the financial system as a whole. So that's a moral hazard also. So I, I think that's, uh, I just want to tie this in. That's interesting because after this was created, there was uh, somebody by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto who <laughs> invented something that uh, in response to this financial crisis, and that's Bitcoin. On January 3rd, 2009, um, it's just a little history. The domain name Bitcoin.org was registered on 18, the 18th of August in 2008. And then on Halloween, a link to a paper authored by Satoshi Nakamoto um, was posted in a cryptography mailing list. Um, and that's when he implemented the Bitcoin software as open source code and released it in January. Um, so when he created it, there's a note in the Genesis block that says the times uh, 03 slash Jan slash 2009 chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. And that's, and that's a reference to the times piece uh, written on the second bailout for the banks, you know, during this financial crisis. So mm. I think that's interesting because, because of the bad intermediaries, Bitcoin arguably was born. Yeah. And that's, again, I want to tie all of these, these conversations to centralized and decentralized control. And so his his mission, arguably, was to create a decentralized intermediary to manage a financial system, pretty much. And his method of doing that was Bitcoin. And essentially what that seems to do is it takes away regulatory powers 
some people who don't have buy-in. From people that don't have buy-in. So you mean government entities? That's one example. And I mean, that's the main one because I'm frequently reminded in this kind of a discussion of how people get to morally posture in positions of government when it doesn't affect them at all. I would agree with that. What's a, what's a good example of moral posturing? Yeah. Well, just talking about any kind of regulation that needs to happen to, to fix something to just be able to garner votes and garner political influence when it's not something that you're truly passionate about. So, so getting all worked up and doing this song and dance about something that can be changed and addressed and isn't going to necessarily um, influence the real shakers and movers behind the scenes who would oppose it and doing this song and dance to be able to get people worked up enough to have a discussion about it, polarize a situation, and then uh, entrench your own camp and get your own followers going. So, right, any, so any political uh, nominee running for office would yeah. be an example. Yeah, and so decentralization takes the power out of their hands. You have to have, I think, you have to have buy-in you have to have skin in the game to be able to, I think, have a, a vote in how things happen. And we see this with other cryptocurrencies, things, things like Ethereum or Ether, where you can vote based off of how much you own and you can make decisions that way. And that's, and that's also has to do with my, the horse that I'm, you know, crossing my fingers for and trying to back Cardano. Cardano has a very involved community um, it's way more managed up front, but hopefully further down the line, it'll be, it'll try to help find that balance between the uh, original creation and intentions and ways of being able to modify with the times and not be too subject to mob rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, I mean, we don't have to make this all about cryptocurrency, but no, since, since you're talking about it. I mean, that's a good, I mean, it, it applies a lot to this because yeah. a lot of the problems in the financial system is because of the few people that control a big part of the system. And there's a lot of moral hazard there because they want to profit like there's no tomorrow and they do until the system breaks. So there's only, much, only so much dead weight the system can handle. And then when there's too much, it breaks. And then obviously a decentralized system like Bitcoin it would be an alternative to that system. But it has yeah. also has its own downsides. And so um, Bitcoin is a proof of work cryptocurrency and it's subject to 51% uh, attacks. So if you have 51% of the compute mm -hmm. power, then you can basically rewrite the entire history, the entire blockchain, because there's the other compute power, you know, they can't compete because they don't have enough power, basic compute power. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and right now, the uh, it was envisioned that everybody had a PC and they could have a relatively equal stake in the proof of work for Bitcoin. But the way it works nowadays is that people manufacture these these ASIC boards, these ASIC computers, and they're mm -hmm. designed specifically to solve Bitcoin algorithms. And so, if you have a whole bunch of money, you can buy a million of these things. And there's companies that do this. And so, the control is 
very centralized in how the Bitcoin uh, proof of work is happening. So systems like that are still subject to problems, albeit centralized problems. The whole point is to decentralize as yeah. much as possible. But people find a way to make it centralized and make and, it a problem. And I think one of the best uh, reflections and indicators of how Bitcoin isn't as alternative as we'd like is just look at how it tracks compared to the S&P 500, compared to the market in general. It goes up and down with the regular financial market. So I think what that indicates is that the main owners of Bitcoin are the same hedge firms who are the same owners of all the other uh, securities. Right. I mean, yeah, so I'm, if we want to talk about downsides, there's a lot of downsides. I think the it's easy for people to manipulate the market for Bitcoin because there's not that many regulations around it and it's it's not the market cap isn't that great yeah. isn't that high so i mean if a if a government wanted to invest in it i don't know a billion dollars that would move the price quite a bit or if the government wanted to invest 500 billion dollars like they invested in the when they bailed the banks out they could do that too yeah i just sent you a link to a map that has to do with a uh, bitcoin mining and interestingly enough it looks like China is on par with the United States for the amount of Bitcoin being mined. So even though I think a lot of crypto has been, if not outlawed, extremely regulated in China, it's something I wish we had spoken to Chin, Sin Chuan about. Um, even despite them maybe supposedly not being allowed to trade in Bitcoin, they're one of the biggest movers and shakers in the Bitcoin community. Well, this is interesting. Bada bing, look at that. So where do you see 50%? Uh, I don't know if I said, or see 50%, but I like- Oh, 37% total America, 20% China, 13% India. And then the rest kind of dispersed. China's 5% or Russia's 5%. Yeah, so United States ahead of the game, but interestingly enough, China's not terribly far behind. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that's a good point about a moral hazard too. And it's almost, it's, maybe it's more of a tragedy of the commons. Maybe there's those, maybe moral hazard and tragedy of the commons is synonymous because the miners ultimately want to get rich by binding Bitcoin and, and supporting transactions of Bitcoin. And uh, it's now it's requiring a ridiculous amount of power. And so mm -hmm. the, they're doing this and they're adding value to society um, and they're getting themselves rich at the expense of energy. And the way we get the energy mostly in China and uh, other places, some other places is coal. And so right. this, this system is demanding, is demanding a lot from the environment through the burning of coal. And you know, that's a tragedy of the commons because no one's here to say, ow, it's hurting by using all this coal. You're making my life worse because it's making a lot of people's life better. But nowadays we're, we're capturing that. And maybe if you live next to a coal plant, you'll have a different say, but not everybody has a coal plant in their backyard. So it's, it's interestingly, um, and I, I think maybe this is the last thing that I want to really dive into in the Bitcoin crypto conversation for today. There were some really interest. there's an interesting movement of, um, publicly traded and perhaps not publicly traded, but the ones I saw were publicly traded energy providing corporations in the United States that 
it would help offset costs when there was an overproduction relative to a lower demand, so too much supply, too little demand, by allocating that excess energy towards cryptocurrency mining, Bitcoin mining. So you had these uh, energy plants, which were, say, burning coal or whatever they were doing to make energy. And because they have to play this game of trying to figure out how much to um, burn to be able to provide to the market, and it is an inefficiency and a waste if they're burning too much because it takes, it takes some startup. And then once it gets going, it's going. So the way that they would hedge that is if there was too much supply, then they would allocate that energy to the Bitcoin mining to be able to reinvest it back into the company. Now, that being said, the couple of those kinds of companies that I bought stock in have fared terribly. They had really good IPOs. They're starting off at like 20, 30, 50 bucks a share. And now they're down to like two, $3 a share. Mm-hmm. So it was a really fun idea, but it hasn't really panned out. I feel like it'd be really hard to implement some of that idea because uh, how would you get the energy companies to cooperate like that? And where would you put the power? Oh, these were energy companies. These were power plants. And so, so they got together and created a company that would, that would make this happen. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. But I think it makes it's sense. not making money. I think the energy not system money. could be more efficient. Yeah. Anyway, if you wanted to buy one of those, um, let me see if I can pull one up real quick. Hunter, so where are we going to transition to from here? I don't. I wasn't expecting to get on Bitcoin. Um, well, I mean, you keep talking about <clears throat> about middlemen. Yeah. Here, SDIG, Stronghold Digital Mining. Um, when it first went public, it traded at twenty-seven dollars a share. It is now trading at fifty cents a share. Um, not great. Sometimes it'd be like that. Not everybody can make money. Yeah, so, so that translates. So, I mean, the we're talking about what a bad intermediary is, and that's somebody who exaggerates their own skill and mm-hmm. and our need for their services. Um, and I think Coinbase, they're kind of. I don't want to talk about crypto, but that's a segue into the next thing um, is I don't know how that it would be so hard to buy a Bitcoin and uh, and somebody like Coinbase makes it easy. But and without Coinbase, I don't know how I do it. I have to use some other exchange. That's probably a piece of shit. And there have been exchanges where I had money in it and they just went under. And so that's a bunch of bad inter- bunch of opportunity to have a bad intermediary in a system that doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't allow for decentralization. Yeah. And, uh, and I think in the, uh, in the chapter, he said something about, uh, the need for complexity, even though he says the more complex it is, the, it's not so good if the intermediary is saying that you, it has to be complex. Um, but he said, sometimes it's just complicated, but I, I think that, uh, we pull a quote from Einstein. If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And maybe the system is just that inefficient that it has to be explained in a complicated fashion. And I, I would argue that if we can't design a system simply, then we don't understand it well enough. We don't understand reality well enough. And I think that's, I, th- I think that was the beauty of Bitcoin, um, that it was so decentralized. But the financial system right now is, um, is what we got. 
So I mean, that's that's my message yeah. to these uh, these financial gurus who are designing the system, the Greenspans of the world. Um, so I don't know. Next, I think we're still in the intermediary part. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a note. In order for intermediary relationships to last, uh, there needs to be trust. And intermediation at its best hides a complex mechanism with a simple interface. So think yeah. in, think like uh, Amazon's feature on their website when you want to buy something quickly, you just click the buy now and you get it in like four hours if you're near a distribution center. That's an insane amount of uh, system, like systematic implementation of all sorts of things to make that happen. And additionally, I think a good intermediary skill set has to do with not only making decisions based off of, say, statistical analysis and the analysis of the tools uh, that are most beneficial to the intermediaries. A good intermediary has to have sector-specific knowledge. And I had a conversation with a guy, um, I guess I won't say his name, but he is one of the co-owners of the biggest pallet production agency in the United States organization. Um, it's a private organization. It's not publicly listed. And he said for a while, the company was publicly listed. And what happened was that the shares of the company would be bought out by Wall Street executives, hedge firms, investment uh, entities. And what would happen is that they would be on, get this board together and they would make decisions that made sense on paper financially, but did not make sense based off of these guys who knew the pallet production sector and industry. And so what eventually happened was uh, they split up the company into different services that it provided. They split it into a pallet recycling uh, business and a pallet manufacturing business. And so they bought back the pallet manufacturing business and took it private again and then got fucking crazy stupid rich just by because they were actually on the ground and they knew what kinds of production plants to acquire and which ones not to acquire, not just based off of the running of the numbers, but based off of the whole ecosystem of knowledge that they had developed throughout the years. And so what happens with these financial intermediaries on Wall Street is they get too locked into their boardrooms of just numbers and they're buying and selling the assets or the asset-backed securities simply based off of the numbers that they generate with little to no knowledge of those assets themselves. Yeah, I could totally see that happening. So they, this guy, they they went public, and then I guess the board of uh, trustees or whatever they're called, not board of trustees. Directors. The board, the board of directors of the company, they split the company up, and they weren't the guys that originally owned the company. Um, so there was there's the pallet production company. Uh, they grew to a point where they got publicly listed. Then the majority of the shareholders got bought by a German comp- firm that wanted to specialize in pallet reclamation and pallet recycling. And so that what they really wanted to use the pallet production uh, facility or business for was to buy those relationships. So if you've got a whole bunch of grocery stores that use those pallets, those fresh pallets, they wanted to be able to use, uh, they wanted to be able to get the relationship of the pallets that they returned that were broken to then be able to recycle the pallets. 
So they conflated a couple they, with this newly publicly listed company. They conflated various purposes of the business and grew it. And so then the uh, some of the hedge firms who are also involved say, okay, we need to get as many production plants as we can. And we just need to saturate the market or take the market share, take the lion's share of the market. And so they bought plants that the production facilities that these other guys who had been in the business wouldn't have bought based off of the supply chain of timber, based off of the machinery. Based so who, off they, of the who did they involved. have? Who did they have running it? They just people from the German firm. They had German um, running so, the company now. Uh, I it was boardrooms in, in Manhattan, as far as I could tell, or at uh, Germany as well. I mean, the, you get to vote based off of how many shares you, how much equity you have in the company, and so shareholders were able to vote on decisions and if you're a majority shareholder then you get to make majority of the decision making and so there was there's a there's a variety of businesses going on with what had previously simply been a, a pallet manufacturing company so what they were able to do is they were able to say okay you guys are really interested in the pallet reclamation aspect we're really interested in the pallet production aspect let's split this company We'll buy it back from you, the pallet production aspect, and then we'll delist it from being publicly traded and just make it private again. So you're the co-owner guy. He got enough money together to buy the reclamation part of the business back. No, the production. The production part. part. Okay. Yeah, and then they were they were their own board. Again. So so did he? Did they let them buy the bad production facilities before he bought it back from them? Well, they didn't have a choice because they weren't the decision makers anymore. So they, they so so they they kind of crashed into the ground first, and then they bought it back from them. I, no, I don't think they crashed into the ground, but they took on aspects of business that weren't their forte, and therefore, they didn't know how to operate correctly. So they took on additional business aspects. So they, they took on so much that they're like, "Oh fuck it, I want to get out of the business now." You guys are offering us money that we offer that we can't refuse. Well, they were making decisions independently of consulting the people who had been in the game. Yeah, but the when, who... when the people were in the game, did they wait for them to make those bad decisions? And they just watched it from the sidelines saying, okay, well, we know this is going because they're making poor decisions. And then after they made the poor decisions, they came in and were like, hey, we'll make you an offer on the company. We see what yeah. you guys have done. That's, my, that's, ba that's basically my understanding, right? They saw the way that it was going with the people in the investment firms who were making the decisions without proper consultation and due diligence, they were doing it simply based off of the numbers that they were able to run. And they said, well, yeah, this isn't sustainable. This is the way that we want to do business. Hmm. And they said, all right, let us, let us downsize what, let's go back to what we know how to do. So let's take back our part of the business. And I guess they were able to make it work that way. And then ended up being the largest production uh, producer of pallets in the United States and cashed out in an enormous way one of those cash outs where it's like you get more money than you know what to do with so he he built he bought it back with a group of people and then he built it up and then he cashed out again yeah yeah good for him yeah well i, I don't know if he had cashed out previously he'd been uh involved the whole time from a small single plant production facility or or even just a trader i don't even know if they produced when they first started that company and then they grew it to being the largest producer in the United States because uh, we have, you know, you've heard of the term bread basket. Well, there's also a timber basket 
And the majority of timber that's produced in the United States is in the southeast of the United States. So this is where the majority of the production facilities are. Interesting. I'd say it's the northwest. But maybe that's old. Maybe they chopped all the wood down already. Not for uh, pallets, I suppose. Different kind of wood. Interesting. Okay, so that <laughs> we got onto that because... Um, I don't know. How did we get into that? Because Complex mechanisms? Wall Street... Wall Street are bad intermediaries. They're getting involved right. in things yep. that they don't know how to manage. Right. They do, yeah, they're getting involved and they're making decisions uh, because they're very distant. They're very far from the ground. And they don't have that happening. necessary local knowledge. Correct. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So they they need that. They need to tie into an expert in the field to kind of ground their ground their assumptions. Yeah. Um. Okay, so we that's a kind of a complex. So I guess that's going back into uh, being a good intermediary. Yeah, that was, that was just last. So I think that's a yeah, that's a good segue to this other part. If uh, yes, so I have this. Uh, so when trust is absent, but products complex as between buyers and sellers of used cards or used cars, markets do not function well. So I think in that instance. Uh, if you were investing in this firm, I think that, and they, they went belly up or they didn't make as much money as they said they would. And the people bought it back. I think that's not, not, uh, building trust with the people investing in them. And, uh, and I think to do well in the industry, I have another note. Trust can be established through experience. Doctor's advice was right before. And, uh, like the reliability of Google search. So to establish that trust, you kind of have to base your trust on that that uh, organization making those financial decisions based off experience with that, that system or with with the industry or whatever. And, uh, and that what you just gave was an example of the hedge funds, not having any experience in, uh, in buying plate, uh, pallet companies. And this is a reoccurring mention in this chapter and this book of how things like Citigroup, uh, entities, investment entities were investing in things that they previously had no knowledge on. So they, at one point they were investing in jets and, and airline freight. They didn't know anything about it. They didn't have experience with it. They were just crunching numbers and figuring that they would invest based off of how they were crunching the numbers. So mm-hmm. uh, a lot of this is getting into warning about don't throw money at things that you don't really know. Um, and then throwing money around is what this whole liquidity subsection is about. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's uh, so. This this trust section part before we get into liquidity, mm-hmm. I still have a lot of notes in that part. Um, that uh, so imagine if luckily that pallet company wasn't like a trillion dollar company, that firm in right. Germany, like the like the financial firms in two thousand nine, where they were kind of doing the same thing they were making these decisions because it seemed profitable to them and they didn't care about the impact to the people they were selling these these financial products to um but they kind of knew and people also knew that were that were familiar with the product at least a little bit that even if it does go belly up the government will bail them out and so mm-hmm. that there's an aspect of like I know that this may not be profitable and this, this can't be sustainable the way we're selling this financial product, but the government 
there's a there's a chance that the government will just bail us out. So there's no incentive for them to say maybe what we're doing isn't good and maybe we should actually develop a product that adds value to people. Um, right. And that kind of goes into the types of regulation that you can have in the financial industry. And he says that, Dr. K says that uh, good regulation creates an environment where regulation and reputation reinforce one another. And so that's, and I bring this up because we're talking about having experience and, uh, and that helps you build trust. But what if you have a system where you have infrequent transactions and, uh, you and can't, they're very you large and they're huge, they're very large and you don't have experience to go back and say, you don't have a good judgment on whether or not that's a good transaction or purchase or whatever. And he talks about all these things. Uh, transparency is a mantra in the modern world of finance, which is indicative of a lack of trust and intermediation. Right. And, he, he's uh, saying that the uh, the chorus and calling for transparency is not a good thing necessarily. It's indicative of the lack of trust. He's saying that we only have to call for the transparency because things are going awry. Right. So like, yeah, why weren't they calling for transparency when uh, they were making a, a bunch of fucking money off the products they were selling? Yeah. People are silly and uh, predictable. Um, so a little, little history. The uh, So before all of the the way the financial system worked at a very high level is um, – actually, I won't even go there. I'm just, I'll just read it from the book. So in the, in the 80s, the transactions replaced trust and trading replaced agency. And so there's some form in the, in the, some form of understanding of the industries that they were participating in, in those agencies. But now they have these systems where it, they're focusing more on the transactions and trading instead of the personal relationships right. with people. Um, and I, I do want to read, sorry, go ahead. And also the volume and value of the synthetic and derivative uh, securities outvalued the actual securities and the actual real world assets that they were supposed to be based on. And that's right. what happened with mortgage, the mortgage crisis in 2008 that precipitated the whole financial crisis was that the derivatives markets for the mortgages, so not the mortgages themselves, not the houses themselves, but the bundles of loans that were traded back and forth and the so-called insurance kind of bets, hedging their bets on uh, different kinds of, of, of bad debt, that in total had more volume of trade and a higher economic value of trade than the actual things that were supposed to be underlying it. So I want to get back to this a little bit later, but I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Oh yeah, I totally agree. That So I have, I've wrote a lot of quotes here from the book and I'll just, I'll read this one again. Um, First is the cost and scale. So the transactions replaced trust and the trading replaced agencies. So they lost that connection to the expertise in the industry. Um, so that made the, the cost and scale of intermediaries, intermediary activity grow rapidly. And the caliber mm -hmm. and intellectual sophistication of people employed by the financial sector increased sharply, but the quality of the intermediation decreased. Why was yeah. that? So it became super complicated. Uh, they had the, the smartest and the brightest people working on these financial products and uh, 
but it didn't increase the quality of the intermediation. So why was right. that? And so I have another quote, people who traded mortgage-backed securities knew about securities, but little about mortgages and less about houses and home buyers, which is probably what you're talking about, which is exactly, exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. People who traded shares knew about stock markets, but not about companies and their products. People who traded interest rate derivatives knew about derivatives, but not the politics and government finance. So, so I had a question is, so here after talking about that is John K is Dr. K implying that the replacement of trust with transactions and agency with trading, does that encourage investors to act more irrationally? It encourages investors to act further away from the interests of the people they're supposed to be representing, especially if they're a fund manager and they gain, um, they gain some kind of profit based off of every transaction. Mm -hmm. So they're acting rationally because they're, they want to get rich. They want to make no, profit. they're, they're acting rationally in their own self interest. Right. But because they could be on, because the outcome of the deal is not what they make money off of. They don't make the money as much as if the client makes money. Uh, they make money just by the deal happening. Then that's, that is incentive to increase the volume of trade. With, irrespective of the outcome, because they're, they're going to be fine either way. And then the, as you said, the analogy that's brought up is a, is the used car market. So you've got a used car salesman who's really trying to push a lemon on you, a car that doesn't work or is like going to break and they're going to make it seem better than it is knowing it's possibly or probably going to fail simply because they have no relation to the outcome. All of their profit is made off of the trade itself. And so they want it. And the bigger the Delta, the bigger the margin between what the actual value of that thing is and how much they're selling it to you, the more money they make. And so, and he's drawing the analogy basically between used car salesmen and some of these financial salesmen or intermediaries. Right. Yeah. So the, I would argue that the incentives are misaligned. I think are, we're not yeah. incentivized appropriately in that, that financial system, at least in 2009. Um, and so this, so kind of to end this, uh, end this off, or top this off. The uh, so the equity markets became busier in secondary markets, while primary issuance had become less important. So again, ties back the people making the purchasing decisions are far removed from the actual assets that you're not even buying, but you're you're buying derivatives of. So they're far removed in two ways. They're far removed from the value of, evaluation of the actual value of the good. And they're also removed from the consequences of the outcome. Right. Yeah, it's it's ties back to the parable of the ox. Yeah. So the expertise isn't really the expertise. It's based off the mar what the market thinks. And the market is not filled, is not full of experts who know what's actually going on. So I, I envision there's a bunch yeah. of, you know, a herd of sheep following somebody, following the rest of the sheep off the side of a mountain, off a cliff. Sure. Um, there's some other analogies we can get to a little bit later on as we uh, flesh out some of the other ideas of this intermediary chapter. So shall we bounce into liquidity? Almost. I have this one last thing. So these, <laughs> I know I've, I've, there's the, the beauty. Did you remember the reading about the beauty contest? In this chapter? Yeah. The Keens. Actually, I think he just mentioned it, but I, I pulled, I had to Google it and look what it meant. 
Um, it's the metaphor of the beauty contest and it ties back to following what the market thinks ah, and, right. and his understanding of it and how it impacts finances and, and Keynes. This was something written in 1936. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I'll just, I guess I'll start reading it. So Keynes described the action of rational agents in a market using an analogy based on a fictional newspaper contest in which entrants are asked to choose the six most attractive faces from a hundred photographs. Those who mm -hmm. pick the most popular faces are then eligible for a prize. So they're picking the most beautiful photographs. Mm -hmm. A naive strategy would be to choose the face that, in the opinion of the, the entrant, so the person who wants to win the contest, is the most handsome. A more sophisticated contest entrant wishing to maximize the chances of winning a prize would think about what the majority perception of attractiveness is and then make a selection based on some inference from their knowledge of public perceptions. This can be carried one step further to take into account the fact that other entrants would each have their own opinion of what public perceptions are. Thus, the strategy can be extended to the next order and the next and so on at each level, attempting to predict the eventual outcome of the process based on the reasoning of other rational agents. So basically family feud. It is not a case of choosing those faces to the best of one's judgment are really the prettiest, mm -hmm. nor even those that average opinion genuinely thinks is prettiest. We have reached the third degree where we devote our intelligences to anticipating what average opinion expects the average opinion to be. And there are some, I believe, who practice the fourth, fifth, and higher degrees. Right. So he was, he's saying that's what he believed what was at work in the stock market. And this was written in 1936. So remember in the late 20s, that was uh, the stock market collapse. And that was the beginning of the Great Depression. So mm -hmm. he was trying to rationalize what was going on, too. So I think that tops it off. I think that's the, uh, you know, people following what the market thinks and what the market thinks isn't what they think what the market thinks is not the best way of, of valuing assets and this other is financial something, instruments. And this is, um, uh, Dr. K speaks about this somewhat disparagingly saying that fund managers and investment bankers, have, they put too much value on the quote, mind of the market or even the wisdom of the crowd and so what this does is it creates little personal responsibility you're saying i'm doing an evaluation not based off of my own evaluation i'm doing it based off of others perceptions and if others perceptions are wrong well i did the right thing i had, I had this formula that i follow it's because they behaved irrationally and um I so I had, an, I had that's an interesting take i wasn't i would wasn't making an argument but i'm curious if there is some level of uh i don't know re removal of responsibility for these people when they sell these things because they're making decisions on what they think the market what they think everybody right. else thinks about it so they're kind of uh distancing themselves from the responsibility of of doing a bad yeah, thing basically i mean this is this is the rationale that keeps happening is i was doing the right thing i was following all the good practices it, it's that everybody else got involved in a bank run in an unnecessary bank run if they hadn't then we would have had the liquidity to be able to respond to these demands but because everybody else because the people didn't behave rationally it went against our models and it and it broke our models so you shouldn't act irrationally and then in reality, what we need to do is not create models based off of pure rationality. What we need to do is create models that that uh, include irrational elements to it. 
and unpredictable elements to it. I would agree. I like that idea that you come up with that by yourself. No, and this is what I'm extrapolating from what Dr. K is saying. Oh, so you are. You're making your own assessment. I like that. So, so no, smart. not exactly. No. I mean, and we're going to get into this, you and I, when we talk about um, swans. Okay. This is, I'm just regurgitating. In your famous swan matrix. In my, in that, my get that, to be that, famous. That you gave swan in your matrix. speech in the future to a bunch yes. of graduates at the University of Florida. So uh, before, so I'm sorry, la very last thing. So that the whole beauty contest metaphor, when we mm -hmm. talked about uh, voting and the rationale that people oh, use, the yes. rationale that people use to vote either Democrats or Republicans, this is exactly that. Yes. I think people have a tendency to want to vote the way uh, so that they win. Oh, hold on, other are you there? Are you hello. hello, hello, hello. I yes. lost you there for a moment. I'm here. Okay. So this is exactly what I was thinking. And this is a, a little note that I had written. So I'm, I'm taking an element of what is discussed later in the chapter with um, ticket scalpers. And I was tying it back in to the end of this intermediary portion. So let me write down what I put. I said, when the majority of focus is placed on trading rather than ownership, then there is a rise in speculation and on short-term holding rather than long-term holding. These speculators act like ticket scalpers, and Dr. Kate calls them ticket touters. Yes. Yep. These speculators act like ticket scalpers, and when the scalpers hold the majority of the tickets, there is high volatility. The scalpers slash speculators look to each other to value a price rather than a more objective valuation of the asset itself, the ticket itself. And then I wrote, this is exactly like tactical voting. Our standard of measurement is other people's opinions rather than our own. The problem is ameliorated when per people take personal responsibility and when we have buy-in. 100%. I think that I'm a little different than what I was talking about with the beauty contest, but I, I love that you tied it back to the your essay, the past Pluto's post, because I was yeah. thinking exactly the same way. I think there's a lot of parallels to be drawn between finance and politics and maybe and that's, psychology and, and maybe that's why they're so in bed with each other with lobbyists lobbying yeah uh, but okay that's uh, very interesting points i think the we can go into liquidity now or the speculators because i think the i do have stuff on speculators let's, let's well let's the, let's go in the order that he did let's let's transition into liquidity okay and then we'll get to the speculators Okay. Remind me, what is liquidity? So there are a couple different definitions of liquidity. And the, Dr. K starts the chapter off with a parable, or not a parable, an anecdote about how they would buy milk in Scotland when he was a boy. They, they would buy milk on a day-to-day -day basis and the milkman would bring it. However, there were days when the milkman would go on holiday. And so what he would do is he would bring twice as much milk the day before that he was going to go on holiday. And Dr. K's dad would make a joke about how it was interesting that the cows were able to produce twice as much milk on those days. And, and he uses that anecdote to begin a discussion of uh, what is liquidity and how is liquidity maintained in the market. There's two basic ways of establishing liquidity, but real, for, real quick, let me go into the YouTube, not YouTube, sorry, the Wikipedia definition of liquidity. So Wikipedia says, 
about market liquidity. In business, economics, or investment, market liquidity is a market's feature whereby an individual or firm can quickly purchase or sell an asset without causing a drastic change in the asset's price. Liquidity involves the trade-off between the price at which the asset can be sold and how quickly it can be sold. So uh, in the Milkman example, uh, he was able to accommodate, he was able to make more supply to accommodate the more demand by diverting the milk stream away from other, uh, other facilities. So instead of as much milk having gone to say the cheesemaker, less milk went to the cheesemaker and more of it was bottled to be able to sell to people, to be able to have on stock on Christmas. And so the two main aspects of maintaining liquidity or the two aspects of liquidity that Dr. K talks about is one, maintaining a reserve or maintaining an inventory and two, having a temporary diversion from other uses. And so he wants to help, he wants to establish this to help saying how a high volume of trade in a market is not necessarily indicative of liquidity. And there's, uh, there's a couple things that he uh, establishes at the beginning about how uh, liquidity can be compromised when there's a lack of trust in the system. So this is kind of tying back to what you were saying. Uh, and um, it also has to do with the stocks that are kept on hand. So if people lose faith in the system, then they're going to, going to be able to want to receive their assets and they're going to do what's basically a bank rush. So if everybody believes that the bank isn't going to be able to supply their cash reserves and their savings accounts, everybody's going to rush the bank and demand to have their money taken back. And what tends to happen is the people who get there first are able to get paid in full. The people at the end of the line or the end of the queue mm -hmm. are left with empty hands. And this can happen even in a system where there is sufficient supply. So frequently in the Soviet Union, um, because there was a lot of mistrust in the government, people would queue up in lines really long for bread and everybody would get bread but those lines wouldn't form if there was that trust in the system per se and i wanted to get a little bit into fractional reserve banking are you familiar with that um that's basically the financial system that we have now right, right. we have the the I guess the federal reserve and then we have um regional banks that are owned by the federal reserve banking system right run by the federal reserve banking system and uh they can create money a number of ways uh one by printing money um and another by loaning money to to the regional banks and when they loan money to the regional banks, they can loan money to other people. And when you loan money like that, it creates currency. Well, that's the argument is that, for the fractional is that, reserve. Is that what the, what the you're referring to? Um, so, so that's the argument for how the fractional reserve system creates money. What the fractional reserve system actually means is you can have a loan for funds that you don't actually completely own. So it used to be in the United States that a certified bank 
um, if they wanted to give out a loan, they only had gotcha. to hold a fraction in reserve of what that loan is going to be. So it used to be 10%. If you wanted to give out a $100,000 loan, you only had to have in reserve $10,000, 10% of what you were loaning out. And so this was argued as to how money was created. I think we're going to be, um, perhaps as we, you and I, develop our understanding of economics, I think we're going to understand more the issues potentially with fractional reserve. Um, what's really interesting well, I think to the know, obvious issue is that when people do a bank run, they don't have enough money to give out. Right. There's, there's not or the liquidity. Milk or whatever, whatever asset. Yeah. It's not the liquidity on hand to be able to meet the need. And so that's, and also there's not enough liquid, there's not enough flowing assets to other uses that could be diverted to help that strange and extreme demand. I, uh, what was I going to say real quick? Okay. So it, I think this is really important just to note. I don't have much to bounce off of it. It used to be in the United States that you had a 10% fractional reserve system in the banks. It has since transitioned in our country and in other countries, I think most notably uh, Britain, there are, there's a 0% reserve requirement. 0%, so, not even yeah. 0.1%. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So banks can give out loans for money they don't have. And this is considered to be a money creation. So how, so what kind of banks? Is it the... So if I create a bank credit union down the road, can I just loan myself a billion dollars? I mean, it's probably a bit more complicated than that. But if if you, I mean, this is no secret. You can go do very cursory research on the fractional reserve banking system and see that banks, I don't know which banks exactly. I don't know if you have to I think it's certain the, I think it's the federal reserve banks that can do this. And then, okay. there, and then there's commercial banks like Chase Bank and... Bank of America and those people that are not that, that don't create money. I don't think. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I had a conversation with one of our listeners, a friend who went to high school with you and I, and he told me that one of his requests was that we do a follow up on unanswered questions. Um, I don't know whether we should do that in this episode or in a follow up episode, but let's unanswered questions. Admit. What do you mean? Um, so sometimes in our discussion, we bring something up and we're like, oh, we don't know what that is. Or we don't know what the full implications or results are. There's just something we don't know. And then we progress in our conversation. And what our listener was saying was, it'd be better if you were able to address those gaps in knowledge in some way. I don't know if it's better to have a addendum to the end of an episode or if it's better to just do some research and continue on. Uh, I think uh, we just write the question down and then maybe we could have a whole episode dedicated to, <laughs> to answering all of the the parking lot questions. So in, in my company, oh, whenever we have a, a meeting, a Kaizen is what they're called, and we try to develop a new process. We take ideas that we want to focus on and then the ideas that don't necessarily fall within the scope of the process creation, we put it in what we call the parking lot. But uh, maybe maybe we have something like a parking lot where we can put those those unanswered questions or gaps okay. in knowledge and then address it somehow. Maybe you could just write it down and then make a blog post with the answers. And I think one of the best ways to manage these unanswered questions is to have viewers and listeners chime in and tell us 
what is it that they want to know more about? I am interested in learning more about fractional reserve banking. To some degree, I don't want to like necessarily do a deep dive, but I want to be able to get my numbers right. Well, how would you know what an unanswered question? I guess it would depend on people saying, hey, tell us more about that fractional reserve banking best, or, or I, whatever. I think that's the best way to manage it is to have uh, viewer feedback. So this is a call to action for anybody listening. Okay. I like that idea. Alrighty. So where were we? Um, yeah. Fractional reserve banking is a pretty good scam. Um, but I also <laughs> wanted scheme. to, when I wanted to think about the idea of like, okay, so what, what are reasonable reserves to have? So in personal finance, a lot of times what a, somebody like a CFA, a certified financial advisor might say to you is you should have a savings account, an emergency savings account worth six months of your um, bills, of your monthly expenses. And so they're saying that 50% of your annual, you should have a fund of reserves equal to 50% of your annual expenses, which if we applied that same logic, I mean, it, it's laughable when applying that same logic to yes. Wall Street and banks. Trillions they're not dollars. doing that at all. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. Um, and, uh, and so I, I did a little personal calculation. Yeah, or I worked with some round numbers. I said, if my expenses are $1,000 per month and I want to reserve for five months worth of expenses in case of emergency, that totals to $5,000. Now, if I already have $20,000 in assets, then this reserve would constitute 20% of my assets. So $5,000 out of $25,000 is uh, 20%. And there you go. 25%. Yeah. 20%, right? Five out of 25. No, oh, five out of 25 20%. is 20%. Yeah. The net is the 25. Because I already had 20. I've got 20,000 in other assets. Yeah, because you have you have 25% more than the 20,000. So, so here's a question, Hunter. What what do you think is a reasonable reserve percentage? I mean, Dave Ramsey says to keep the six, month, six months worth of expenses in your bank mm -hmm. account and then invest in things after that i don't know i think that's quite a bit i'm not like i'm not concerned that i i will be able to get a job like if an emergency right. comes up um i don't know unless i get hurt really bad then but that's why i have health insurance i think six months is quite a bit i think maybe a few months a month or two just to make yourself feel good but i mean people a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck and they make it work um but i, I guess i'd a few months would be my short answer to that question. But I do want to talk about how, you know, the, these giant financial institutions aren't holding six months worth of cash. No. And, and we're, <laughs> and we're kind of getting the message as individuals in society to keep six months worth of cash. And that's because we hold up the entire system. Right. So that, so the more savings we have, the less likely it is that the system will fail because we're all parts of the system. And if we were told, well, don't hold any any reserves, just spend it all on on investments. Right. Then if the market crashes, it's it's more of a it's more dangerous that way. So I think it's it's unsurprising that we're getting the advice as individuals and it's exactly the opposite of what these incredibly wealthy financial institutions are doing. There's a good argument to be had about how some principles that are applicable at one level may or may not be applicable at different levels. 
And so this question of reserve funds to be able to support a response to an emergency or change in demand and supply and change of demand, which is pretty much the definition of liquidity here, at least in the short term, um, how much does that principle for us have to apply to these big companies? Well, well I, if I they think can it, more apply should apply more to them than it would to us because they're so big they impact things a lot more so, than we would. So in the short term, the businesses who disregard reserves benefit more than those organizations that allocate more towards the reserves. However, there's an argument to be made that whenever there is a disaster, those who allocated more to their reserves are able to weather the storm. Now the problem comes about when the government comes in and bails out people who didn't do uh, a good practice of reserve keeping. And then the people who reasonably kept the reserves suffer because they're paying taxes to everybody else, but they're getting outcompeted by those who are less scrupulous. Like uh, hurricanes in Florida, for example. Mm -hmm. Hurricanes are bad, but I mean, you could protect yourself a little bit by having money in reserves, even with insurance, than if you didn't have anything in reserves. But then if people come in and bail you out, like the government, then uh, it's incentivizing people to have less in reserves because there's the likelihood, there's a chance that you'll get bailed out. There's no reason to sacrifice now when you don't have to, when it's not for anything because you'll just get bailed out. Daddy comes in and, and pays your bills. So I could create an extended metaphor based off of house building and uh, hurricane and, and how that affects things. So if you've got two builders and one says, I'm going to build a house that's like got a really deep, solid foundation. And to do that, it's going to cost a lot more uh, uh, resources and time. And also I'm going to have the materials for the house itself be stronger I, and more expensive. I'm going to be able to build fewer houses. But if I build the houses very cheaply, then I can build more of them. And as far as like living in it on a day-to-day basis goes, I can charge the same kind of rent as the people who are building the more solid houses. So I can take up more real estate. I can take more of a proportion of the market by building cheaply in the short term. And then when a big hurricane comes through, as it eventually will on a long enough timeline, then all my cheap shitty houses get blown away and my competitors long, you know, deep rooted concrete block houses stick around. So in the long term, the concrete guy would win out if there wasn't the government regulation of coming in because they hear the cries of like, oh, these people need houses. Their homes were destroyed. We need to be able to recover these homes. It's only fair. These people still have a place to live. So come and build, help finance me to build more cheap, shitty houses. And, and so it would have been the case if there was no government regulation that the people who built the very sturdy houses would have been able to grow their business more on a longer term. But when the government intervenes and uses taxpayer money to bail out the people who had unscrupulous building methods, then they continue to take the lion's share of the real estate and um, they're not punished for their bad decision making. And we're, and in potentially because they keep growing and taking up more of the market, the next disaster will be even worse. Yeah, totally. And that's, 
they're just acting in their own self-interest because they want to become wealthier. And to do that, it's better to build cheaply because there's no cost. There's no external cost that you have to account for, externality that you have to account for because you just get bailed out by the government. And yep. no, no politician in the right mind is going to say, fuck you homeowners. Maybe you should be purchasing homes that are can better withstand hurricanes. And in my opinion, I know we talked about the insurance companies a little bit in Florida a few episodes ago. Um, but to me, one function of the insurance companies is to uh, is to give insurance plans to homes that are sturdier, like maybe have a tiered approach to it and get make insurance less expensive to homes that are sturdier. And I think right. they probably do that to a certain extent. I think you have to have um, build above sea level. <laughs> that's that's one basic, one basic one, right. and have a, a roof within built within ten years. But a lot of people are complaining about that. It's kind of a scam, um, you know. And have hurricane shutters, all this stuff. And it makes sense that those people in those homes would pay less money a month than people in other homes that don't have those features because they're more likely, obviously, more likely to be destroyed in a hurricane. And all this stuff is bad. But it makes sense from a systematic point of view to, I don't want to use the word discriminate, but that's what you're doing based off the quality of the home. Because you're in the long term, you're incentivizing the companies and the people that are building houses to build them cheaply. In a sense, you're... We have to be grounded to reality somehow. We can't always right. be growing and just get free money. There's no such thing in, as in free a, money. In a sense, in this... Um liquidity sorry in this leveraging kind of aspect if we are giving cheaper insurance to a house that's better built a house that had more capital invested up front then we're incentivizing the equity we're, as opposed to incentivizing the debt aspect so yeah it, it would be good to for insurance companies i don't think i don't think be, that's necessarily true i think you could still you know? take a loan out on a very well built home and that could be highly I, and, leveraged, and then, but we're not talking about leverage right now. I was talking about how the capital that it is required to be able to build a more solidly built house and and is akin to a loan that has a higher equity aspect rather than a higher that's less leveraged. I would say if it's uh if it's a higher percentage of the loan that you have to take out then you'd have to have more, more, I guess, equity in the purchase of the loan. But if it's a million bucks versus a hundred thousand bucks, you still need twenty percent of either to to get the loan yeah, to I'm build the house. I was talking more about the um, so yeah, the down payment. The higher the down payment, the higher the equity, the more that should be incentivized, as opposed to the more leveraged it is by having more of the loan as a percentage of debt. I think that in both cases they're equal as a percentage of total. It's just the absolute values are going to be different. No, I'm just trying to make a, a comparison how we, we, we should not be incentivizing the debt aspect of a loan. We should be incentivizing the equity aspect of a loan. Oh, so you're saying if for a well-built home, maybe you only need 10% down instead of 20? For something one. like that. Something like I that. I think that would be a good way to. That's one example of an incentive to, uh, you know, just have more equity on hand to buy. 
properties. I like that's a good idea. Just a thought to encourage well-built homes. Yeah. <laughs> good to encourage good things. Basically there's a lot of free lunches that are promised nowadays. I think, I don't know if it's always been that way, but it seems like the promise of a free lunch is as normal. Well, and so I don't know, I would be interested in you fleshing out that idea of a promise free lunch. But what I, I can definitely agree with is that there's way more expectation for a free lunch. And so the, there's a lot of people walking around saying, where's, where's my free lunch? I need it now. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I think the, yeah, that's a vicious cycle, I think. But, but what I mean by that is anything that we get for free, because there's nothing for free. I mean, they um, were bailed out, something like the student loans, student loan bailout. Mm-hmm. Um, I say student loan bailout, student loan forgiveness. That's basically a bailout. It is a bailout, yeah. And I think it doesn't incentivize good behavior on anyone's no. part, not no. on the people taking the loans, not on the institutions that gave the loans in the first place. So what's stopping, like, so people that are taking loans now, they're getting, they're, it's easy for them, or they're, they're getting fucked because the people that had loans before, they get $10,000 of loan forgiveness. But nowadays, they still, right. they're still stuck with the 7% or whatever, 5 to 10% loan. The out, higher loan rate. Than and it they're handing used out $100,000 loans to 18-year-olds at 7 to 10%, and you can't file for bankruptcy. So I mean, it's but, and just the fact that they're forgiving a fraction of it for the people is like a very small band aid, and the loans aren't structured to be. Uh, the, the the way the loan system was set up was that the money's basically subsidizing tuition or colleges, mm-hmm. and they're just upping the tuition every year because they're incentivized to do so because the government is subsidizing them with right. free money that they give to the right. people that probably won't pay it back it's a it's a perfect analogy as to how the stakes and volatility gets raised in the economic market is it how is that i think so i think so well so because the because, the, the liquidity decreases over time because they're increasing the amount of loans that they hand out so the debt to equity it's the, increases it's the same confusion as a higher volume of trade or money is analogous to increased liquidity, right? The education isn't becoming more valuable for the cost to go up so much. It's it's going up for the same kinds of reasons why the insurance goes up. One, because the insurers can afford, or sorry, the service providers can afford to charge more because they know that either the uh, the the funding agency, whether it's insurance or the government or whatever, is able to provide more funds. Um, right. And with student loans, they're always going to provide more funds. They're not yeah. signaling. They're basically, the, stu- the, the forgiveness plan is basically sending a message to universities to continue that business, continue business as usual. Raise your tuition rates. There's no threat. We're not, we're not going to stop giving out loans to, to students. Yeah. So it sends out wrong messaging. It's it's bad incentives. It's not good for the system, even though the people have taken out loans when they're really young. It's they're predatory loans. Yeah. But you have to take. Everybody's got to take responsibility for it. Like one side can't front it, and right now the government is fronting it through our taxes, 
and borrowing from the stability of the future of our country, basically, because they're devaluing our currency. And, and so I don't want to get too much that, on a tangent. I was doing back to yeah. uh, Dr. K. Part of the potential outcome of that is that uh, education seekers will go to other countries where it's more affordable. Or maybe uh, there'll be a, a proliferation of more community kind of colleges that are cheaper and the bar is lower to entry. Because or, yeah, where education what, becomes free. Maybe that's something that happens. And to me, education that's, that's, is free, it's sponsored yeah. by the government, funded by the people. Maybe. I mean, you can get an education off YouTube right now. So maybe maybe they split it up between like a guided education experience, which is what university is, versus self-study. Because a lot of the stuff is available for free if you put the time in to find the knowledge. It's not easy. So, so I, there was an article, I'm sorry, you just reminded me of it, um, of how... There is now a growing concern in the, in the school system because AI is able to respond to assignments with increasingly increasing complexity. So basically, you can pull out your phone, you can type in what the essay prompt is, and it'll generate a whole novel essay for you in your pocket. And if it's one of these situations where you're supposed to be doing the assignment from home because there's you know sickness or whatever, or maybe that's just the model that we changed to. People don't want to have to relocate to go to school anymore. They can, they, people, we can save costs by the classroom coming to you at your home. Then these kids can just, you know, have their phone off. Wow. They're going to come up with ways to be able to respond. That's pretty wild with the new tool. So, so what education needs to be doing, arguably, is not teaching people how to write an essay. What education needs to be doing is teaching people how to interface with the machinery so that you can get the results that you want. But I don't know, man, you, I mean, we went to public school, like you see what teachers are like, we're going to, they're going to, teachers are going to dig in their heels and they're going to say, we need more regulation to stop the student cheating as as the, the modern requirements of the world are get further away from what the previous uh, curriculum was supposed to serve. Because that's where we're at now. Like the people coming out of these this university here are dumb as shit, and they got no work ethic. So all right. <laughs> our, well, that's our, uh, uh, that's anecdotal. That's my experience, uh, and they got no real world experience. Well, I mean, uh, yeah. honestly, so I I can give my my own personal experience with using technology to cheat. So I don't know if I'm right. Ra- I guess I am writing myself out, but the in. Uh, my Latin class in high school, we had to translate all of these Latin passages. And honestly, mm-hmm. I only took that class because it seemed, one, it seemed interesting. Latin seemed interesting more than Spanish and the other ones that were offered. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, uh, it gave me like a GPA boost if I took the class or something. I, I took it not to learn Latin. Mostly it was mm-hmm. just to, to fill my schedule up with something. And uh, I remember doing, translating the passages and I had a flip phone at the time and I found this text bot on the internet in 2007 or something. And I just translated the passages beforehand because he would pick a part of a passage and I just had it translated uh-huh. into text. Like I did an online translator, put it in this text bot and I texted it to my flip phone 
And when I was doing the translation on my test, I would just scroll through my phone and just copy my phone text down. Looking oh back, it God. probably would have been pretty easy to just memorize the passage, but I found it easier to text it to myself and cheat using yeah. the technology. So just from that perspective, I can, and you extrapolate it out to AI now, like why wouldn't you use AI to help you solve problems on difficult homework? Well, or I mean, even it's, it's or even happen. write essays. I imagine AI could probably write essays now. Remember English class? You write, no, you write essays like yeah. every week. So like that's you easily, exactly what I'm like saying. If I didn't do it and it's like midnight and I was like, I don't feel like writing this essay. Just say, hey, AI, write me some these es- these something about essay to kill writing, a mockingbird or some shit. Right. These, these deep learning essay writing algorithms can write at a sixth, seventh, eighth grade level. No problem. And so you can you can just dial in what your writing level is. You can tell them what the prompt is. You can give them certain parameters to address, and it can pop out a coherent essay that needs minimal revision. Um, and and I've I've heard what test taking is like now these days. So with the advent of COVID, a lot of people have to stay home. They have to do all their classes online. They take their classes online, and the test you have to go into certain softwares to be able to take the test and part of the software is an eye tracking movement to be able to track of how much of what you're doing is on your computer screen so you have to be doing say all of your work on the computer not handheld on a notebook if your eyes are too often too far away from the computer it's going to flag you for cheating that's interesting i mean that that I seem feels like to me that's the only way to make sure people don't cheat at on tests remotely. So so that's so it, the, yes. that's something that people are doing. That's that's like a system oh, yeah. right now. It's so it's kind of like it's kind of remember turnitin.com when we submitted writings and yep. they had like a plagiarism checker. I imagine this yep. is the eye tracker is basically the same thing. They say, "Well, you looked you looked over here to your right 40% of the time." Yeah. That's flagged, so we need to investigate this. And see if because because there's the screen sharing as well, this the screen sharing element. So you can't look at the screen itself because they because the proctors can look at that. So you, you're trying to look somewhere near the camera, supposedly. That's not what's being screen shared. The thing is, that, I guess it's sufficiently intelligent enough. People are going to find ways around. Yeah, that I think it's going to be a constant program. Battle. I imagine I could just put my it's, phone. Oh yeah, put my phone like on the middle of the screen where the camera can't see my phone, and I'm looking at my phone instead of the screen. <laughs> right. I do that in meetings I mean, all the time. It's Just easy. Text. Like you, in thirty seconds, you thought of a way around this regulatory measure. And so what happens is, the more we try to dig our heels into an antiquated methodology, the the more sophisticated ways there are going to be to find a way around it. So at some point, we're going to have to ask ourselves: Do we really have to learn uh, how to do long division? Do we really have to learn the principles of division, or do we just know? that a calculator can do it i think uh i think so because i think it's fundamental to more advanced mathematics that ai probably won't be able to may not be able to do probably will at some point but not as easily as long division i think things like mathematics we're going to need to know most of the fundamentals yeah um but maybe i don't know maybe things i think writing is going to be a skill that will be decreasing over time with AI. Because I remember 
me learning like writing is writing was difficult for me mm-hmm. growing up. And if I had the ability to just use an AI to write my essays, there's a lot, there was a lot of times where I would have probably used that instead of writing my essays. Well, for an engineer type, this is going to be huge. This is going to be great. Why waste so much time meticulously trying to find the grammatical and syntactical optimal way to represent your information when you can just input the variables and input the basic parameters and then it can churn out the outcome and then you can just submit that. I mean, efficiently, as far as efficiency goes, as long as it's comprehensible and the person on the other side's like, yep, this translation of information makes sense, then it makes way more sense to be able to save time via that kind of reporting. Yeah, 100%. I remember using something called uh, Wolfram Alpha to check my my math homework mm-hmm. and all my engineering homework. And you could type in like solve X and a super complicated integral, triple integral, and uh, and it would do it. And then if you have the paid version, it would even go through all the steps to show you how it came to the answer. So you could literally plug in all of the most complicated math homework and then copy the solution down. But but there okay. were some aspects of like picking which equation to use and understanding what variables, what con- what values to plug into the variables for the equation. I think... Honestly, that was the, probably the more difficult part in a lot of the engineering homework. And then solving it became something like, oh, just plug it into a calculator. So this is going to tie back in a little bit into intermediary functions. At some point, the intermediary functions get too complex for the general user. So the, the takeaway that I had to students when I taught, um, when, I was, when I was a teacher, was when we're having this discussion of knowledge and and trying to figure out how things work, let's look at a microwave. We have, we have like true knowledge of what a microwave is, and then we have functional knowledge of what a microwave is. And it's gonna be the same thing with how we integrate with machinery and other intermediary services moving forward. I don't need to know all the components of a microwave and how it actually heats up food. All I really need is the functional knowledge and then what we can do is we can have a specialization of labor and have some other person that understands the mechanics of the microwave. All I need to do is to be able to punch in numbers and hit start. And so that's that's part of that, uh, that decreasing complexity of the interface. And what's going to happen with a lot of things where maybe we just need to know the basic principles and then based off of that, we can work with the intermediary function um, as far as just as a user to help move things along. And part of what the intermediary function is going to be for things like AI. Like we're not going to even understand how AI works. This has come up a number of times where they run these deep learning algorithms and it comes up with a more efficient outcome. But when people try to pull apart the underlying code of how the AI wrote itself, they don't understand how these things came to be. And so that gets into this uh, emergent properties discussion. Emergent properties is a principle in biology where the sum is greater than the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So we can pick apart neurons and we can understand how neurons work. And we can even have an idea of how the framework of neurons relates to some amount of message conveyance, but we, we do not understand how consciousness arrives from that. Yeah. I knew this was going to a conversation about consciousness. I mean, if we want to go there, but so, um, so where, where were know. you? Where were you 
where were you trying to go with this? I forget. Is this more of a tangent, or are you tying it so, back? Yeah, to the... this is this is kind of a, a tangent. But um, so right. so it's talking about intermediary functions. <sighs> yeah, the AI could be could become the ultimate bad intermediary. Yeah, yeah, it could it's, become it's that become, way, like the Matrix. It, right, right, because we don't understand how it works, and all, we can try to hammer in the basic principles and try to evaluate how well things are working based off of there. But largely what may happen is that as long as we're getting the results that we want, it can be a black box. It's okay. Um, and, and so that middle man is going, as we want and demand a greater output, it's going to increasingly leverage the system. We're going to, I mean, it's, it's the only way it can happen is, yeah, if we, if we have an a increasing amount of demand, then we're going to have to take on a to be able to get an increasing amount of reward. We're going to have to increase the risk, and the way that that's done is through leveraging. Um, well, so yeah. So in that analogy, what are you leveraging? Good question. An AI. Are you leveraging your ability to do things? Just do basic functions. You're leveraging you, yeah. knowledge. Yeah, you're you're going to. Um, I think that's right. I think you're right. You're, you're going, leveraging yeah. synthetic knowledge from the AI, right? To build yeah, wealth, I guess. Derivative. Derivative decision making. <laughs> Based off what you think the AI is going to, what answer the AI is going to give you. Yeah. Based off what the other AI thinks, the AI will provide to you. Yeah, so the, the AI is making decisions based off of human understanding, and then you've got the layers built upon that. And then I'm sure only so, good could happen from AI. And then and part of the issue that can that can happen is that uh, one small inefficiency gets magnified with each layer of multiplication or each layer of of uh, de derivativeness, derision, derivativity, <laughs> derivativity. Um, and that could have some very, it's going to have some very unexpected consequences. The more, the, the more resources we pour into these intermediary functions. Mm -hmm. and one of the unexpected consequences was so what, 2008 financial crisis. Yeah. So what would be a good analogy there for having a, uh, an AI that we have to bail out because we depend too much on it. So it's like a black box, but it's, but it's um, making decisions like. This is how we allocate the energy to each state that we generate as a nation or something. And the AI messes up one time and uh, like, oh, what's the solution? I don't know. Let's add more AI functionality or more compute power to this to this system. Right. More energy, more computing power, more is there, is there a point over the system. At this, which AI be becomes more... too big to fail. Yeah, exactly. It's going to get it, part of the AI's own argument is going to be, I the reason that I wasn't able to operate well was because I didn't have enough influence on the system. There were unpredicted things that came about um, or that, that you couldn't respond to, you, you slow, dumb human. I could have responded to it if only you had let me. And so I, that's going, I think, to possibly be part of the response. Hmm. That's kind of freaky. I just took a little dark turn. Um, so I do have something that ties back to where we left off with... Um, uh, you know, having enough in inventory and then 
uh, having enough liquidity. So there, there was this quote in the book. So really a hard segue. Um, <laughs> Let's get the fuck away yeah, from that. Yeah. Well, I, mean, there's, I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any good into that conversation. But so, um, so I'll just read my notes here. So uh, talking about the collapse of Rolls Royce in 1971. So there was a run on the Derbyshire. Is that how you say it? Derbyshire, Derbyshire Building Society. Derbyshire. Yeah. Depositors fear that the collapse of one venerable local institution might be followed by the collapse of another, but the fear has quickly subsided. And then my, my notes here was, uh, seems like a good reason to bail an institution out. So what if a too what, big to fail what, firm... What are you talking about with this Derbyshire? Um, it was in the liquidity section. Same section. Dude, I think our versions are different. You keep bringing up examples that I don't have. I took a lot of notes. I'm going to go into the index right now and look up Derbyshire because I keep bringing up like this beauty pageant thing. I don't think it was mentioned one time. It was mentioned once and all that the explanation of it. I pulled from Wikipedia. Gotcha. Um, I'll I'll send it to to page to you after. I'm curious to know if we are reading different versions. No. Yeah. In the index, there's no Derbyshire. But but when I bring this up, I bring this up because uh, we're talking about it's never kind of hinting at it's never really good to bail out institutions, especially if they're mm-hmm. too big to fail. It sends the wrong message. Um, but this this run on the Derbyshire, is that the right way? You said that is the right way? Yeah. I don't know. Sure. Sure. Right. When it's written Shire. Yeah. And it's, and it's like a suffix, it's pronounced sure. Okay. Derbyshire, probably Der, Derbyshire or Derbyshire Building Society. So they basically they uh, there was a run on that organization and people were scared that since that organization fell, they couldn't support the bank run that happened to them, that other institutions were going to fail. So it was like an infection in that region that people were afraid that people were going to um, do a bank run on other organi- other financial institutions. And so one okay. one reason, one way to assuage, assuage those concerns um, that it's going to spread to other parts of the industry mm-hmm. was to bail the institution that failed out right to, so to, so yeah is are there times where it is a good thing where it is beneficial to the system as a whole to bail out a specific firm i think so i think they're i mean it's like kind of i it's like isolating when you have covid so it doesn't spread so it's kind of the, the way the you're analogy, isolating it is by throwing money at it in this case the, the analogy of being putting out a fire before it grows out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and the question is, how apt of an analogy is that? Or are you feeding the fire by bailing it out? I think the well, I think if people know that you're going to get bailed out, you expect that you're going to get bailed out. There's the moral hazard that happens, and you're like, well, yeah. why sh- why should I be risk averse if I'm going to get free money if I fail? I'm incentivized to do the riskiest thing that I can do. Yeah. So maybe, maybe if people are bailed out without the expectation of being bailed out, maybe that's the ideal system. Yes. But the problem is possible to implement. It is. But the problem with it is that uh, you need to recover those funds you need to be, and that's going to come from the taxpayer. So that means that again, the system's going to, I guess, become more volatile uh, and, and it's going to become more centralized as to be able to recover the funds for that bailout taxes and interest rates and things go up. 
So, so maybe as a, a net positive to the whole, it would have been better for there to be a small spread of fire, burn out some of the dead wood in the ecosystem, rather than try to preserve as much of the wood as possible so that more dead wood accumulates. So when there is an eventual fire, it's truly catastrophic. Mm-hmm. It's like a Band-Aid. Yeah, so maybe maybe that uh, that firm has to be sacrificed or maybe you just let the fire run its course. So another thing is, uh, so there, one way to stop a financial crash, one of the ways that the central bank can stop it from or make it happen worse, lessen the damage, is mm-hmm. that they can uh, offer a supply of cash and short-term credit. And sometimes it could orchestrate like a rescue operation through the coordination of other financial institutions. But he's, Dr. K said in this chapter that it's hard to coordinate in highly competitive markets because Fannie Mae is not going to want to bail out, help bail out, uh, I don't know. Right. It's a competitor, Freddie Mac, or yeah. So, uh, and they said, I have this note, this quote, their problem stemmed, so Fannie Mae, HBOS, RBS, Citigroup, their problem stemmed not from the solvency, but from liquidity, that they were short of cash, but their business was basically sound. Yeah, but it wasn't. Right, so they, they could not even know if the banks were solvent. So that that's a quote in the part where they're talking about, well, we don't know if we can even uh, be solvent because of the complexity of the financial products that they were selling to the people. Right. So here I'd like to touch upon uh, solvency versus liquidity because I didn't really know what that meant when I first read through. Okay. Uh, that was part of the research that I did. So Wikipedia says, solvency in finance or business is the degree to which the current assets of an individual or entity exceed the current liabilities of that individual or entity. Solvency can be, can be described as the ability of a corporation to meet its long-term fixed expenses and to ex- accomplish long-term expansion and growth. So solvency is a measurement of being able to grow and uh, have more assets and liabilities over the long term. And liquidity, again, is basically the ability to respond to demand in the short term or um, be able to pay short-term debts. So uh, on this other website, it gave me a kind of a comparison. And I'm quoting again. Uh, this is freshbooks.com accounting solvency versus liquidity. Solvency versus liquidity is the difference between measuring a business's ability to use current assets to meet its short-term obligations, so that's liquidity, versus its long-term focus. Solvency refers to the business's long-term financial position, meaning the business has positive net worth and ability to meet long-term financial commitments, while liquidity is the ability of a business to meet its short-term obligations. That makes sense. Liquidity, short-term, solvency, long-term. Yeah, so, and then, so they, they're saying they didn't know if they had solvency. It means they didn't know if they have a, a, a operational, profitable, reasonable business model. Yeah, so that so they're saying they're not solvent. Yeah, right, because they don't understand where where all the the money's going and who owes who, and that, therefore right. they are not solvent. Yeah, they can't respond to their long term obligations. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, so they're arguing that. Their problems problems stemmed not from solvency but from liquidity. That's what so they yeah. So they they are long term. They have their business figured out basically. But they right argue. now we don't have enough cash. We need more cash. Yeah, that's what right. they're arguing. And they're blaming it on 
irrational bank runs. That's silly. Hey, I mean, if, if you're going to argue yourself out of something. Yeah. So I think uh, we talked about a lot of the stuff in this liquidity chapter. Um, you mentioned the speculators, and then we hopped into the beginning of that chapter. Um, and you were saying that speculators were far removed from the actual asset that was being traded on mm -hmm. or derivatives of which that were traded. Um, Dr. K was arguing that they do provide some value and that they okay. can help provide liquidity, uh, tempor temporary liquidity, because they can bring capital to the market and their scale of their activity is moderate relative to the activities of long-term investors. Hello? So, yep. Hello? I hear you. Hello? Uh, I lost it. There, you back. So the, I'll repeat what I said. So the um, speculators can provide liquidity if they bring capital to the market and the scale of their activity is moderate relative to the activities of long-term investors. So basically, they're they're buying. They want to make a quick profit, so they're buying from people who yep. aren't willing to hold the asset or the financial product because they're afraid of a bank run or something. But the speculators are saying, "Well, it's crashing now. I'm gonna." bank on the fact that it's probably going to stop crashing and we'll make some money. Um, so, so they're adding value because they're, they're temporarily holding the assets and it mm. helps add liquidity to the market because they're buying and holding for yeah. a relatively short period of time, but it helps dampen the effect of, uh, helps of stabilize. Yeah. It helps stabilize. Yep. yep, exactly. And, and so the pawnbroker, the speculator, the ticket scalper, has a place in the market. Right. So they do have a place in the market. They are they are adding value. Correct. But the issue arises when um, it, it overwhelms the market. And so that becomes more of the focus than the thing, the end user aspects. And the things in the middle overwhelm the things on the outside. Right. Like a black box. That, and they, that was a great great uh, example of the middleman and the intermediary being a black box because even the guys running the companies couldn't explain why their business was fundamentally bad because they couldn't even say they, that their they, businesses were solvent. So that, that's a definition yeah. of a black box that's just growing out of control in, uh, in a system, just like the AIs will be one day. Without any doubt... So I got, then, I got one last quote for this chapter, if you're ready to, or this part of the chapter, if you're ready. Uh, yeah, but, uh, are we still, what part are we in? We're in the leverage? <laughs> Liquidity. No. Oh my gosh. Okay. I we still got diversification ahead. and leverage. All right. So the, uh, I think he, he had this quote at the end of this section, and it says, by supporting an industry structure not well adapted to the needs of users, Policymakers preserved not just the financial system, but also the institutions that had given rise to the instability. And that's talking about, you know, how the government bailed out all these big financial institutions. Yeah. It summarizes it pretty well, I think. Diversification. Yeah. Diversification is part of the answer to that. Well, before we dive into diversification, do you mind if we take a little break? Uh, yeah, I need to use the men's room. We've, we've got human attributes. Yes. We've got uh, snakes with human traits. Oh, look at that. 
All right. Uh, be back soon. Okay. into the section called diversification. Yes. No? Yes. Yep. I I don't know how much I have to say on this particular one. And besides diversification means that it lowers your your you're spreading out your assets among among assets that are independent of each other or as have as little correlation as possible so mm-hmm. that if there is a stressor on one it doesn't spread or affect the others now there's always going to be general sort of economic stressors but um we don't want the specific stressor of one to affect the, the outcome of another asset within a portfolio and so by diversifying, by having independent assets, you reduce the risk. However, you also reduce the reward. But that reduction in reward is paid off by the stabilization of growth. Correct. That's about. I mean, that's that's it. That's the essence right. of the benefit of diversification. Right. So, if your portfolio is constructed of different kinds of assets, then on average your higher, your long-term returns will be higher than um, any individual holding or security. So like you said, you're, you're, they need to have the least correlation as possible, as little correlation as possible between the investments um, so that you reduce the risk, but at the expense of the possibility of higher returns. Yeah. But so the stable low-ish returns in the long run. So say, for example, you hold a stock that eventually becomes the next Apple or Amazon, and you buy that stock. It's eventually going to be, say, $1,000, but you're buying it when it's $100. Now, if you put all of your money into that one stock, you'd be super rich. But if you only put 10% of your money into that one stock, you're only going to make a, a fraction of what you otherwise could have. However, the flip side is you couldn't re- predict the future and you didn't know if that stock was going to become the next Amazon or Apple or if it was going to go out of business. So if you'd put all your money in it and it failed, you would have lost all your money. Right. And uh, and the way we, I say we, before my time, uh, people would best diversify their investments was they would invest in different companies and in different industries. Nowadays, mm-hmm. it's hard to completely diversify your portfolio that way because some global companies are so large that they encompass more than one industry and they have common sales profiles, so they're all owned by the same organization. Right. So in other words, it's harder to minimize the specific market risk um, when investing in global corporations. And there's specific market risks and there's market risk, specific market or a specific risk is the risk of the firm that you're investing in. And the market risk would be uh, proportional to the market that you're investing in. It could be 
I don't know, energy. And and part of the uh, independence and uh, lack of correlation that comes into play is with the portfolio. Is this portfolio managed by somebody else or is, are you managing yourself? Are you picking the assets that go into it? Because mm-hmm. if the portfolio is managed by one of these enormous corporations, then and these enormous corporations say have an interest in uh, as shareholders in equity in some of the underlying assets then there may be a conflict of interest there uh, and there may be a conflation of interdependence and so uh, what on the surface if you've got looking at the portfolio if it's you know all these different companies if like you're saying if they've got sort of the same parent company or they have enormous shares by the um, company that is creating the portfolio in which those underlying assets are in, then it then those assets become more interdependent than independent. Right. Right. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, because they're all they're all linked somehow. If they're if they're not independent from each other, then there's that that contagion can spread. If something bad happens here, then that contagion can spread to the other places because they're linked more than you would want when uh, when you're trying to diversify your, your investments. So part of the, for me, the takeaway here is to own your own asset, not to minimize the amount of intermediation between you and your value. I think that would be one takeaway. I think the, you could get richer quicker, wealthier quicker if you leverage, leverage. Right. But you take on more risk. Right. You take on more risk. So, I mean, it's pick your poison. How, how, how risky of a profile do you want to have? And I do, I think, I think we kind of get the gist of this section. I do have some interesting yeah. facts that he mentioned here. Um, intermediaries offered investors a way to diversify by investing in all available stocks. So before you could go to, I'll just say intermediary, cause I can't think of an example and say, Hey, I want to have the least risky uh, investment possible. So they would go out and invest in all of the possible stocks for you. But then uh, computers made it easy in the 70s. And that's when index funds were invented. And index funds are basically representative of entire industries. And so you could buy an index fund and and uh, diversify your portfolio that way instead of saying like, I want 1% to go this company, 1% to go that company, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and and ETF electronically traded funds are similar to index funds. And I had to watch a YouTube video on this and index- so, so real quick, real quick. An index fund um, is the larger class. And then, so you've got a uh, mutual fund is what is managed by a person. A mutual fund is a form of index fund. And then you've got the ETFs, which are not, don't have human managers, but the, the ETFs are also a form of index fund. Yeah, the index, the, what I understood the difference to be was that index funds are more long-term investment vehicles and the ETFs are more short-term. So you could day trade ETFs like stocks and cryptocurrency mm-hmm. and, and you know options trading, uh, but you can't do the same for index funds. And I think you can only trade index funds like once a day, once every 24 hours. ETFs, you can, you can do um, as many times as you want. So index funds are more passive and typically require like a higher minimum investment than ETFs. Okay. I I, I could be wrong. I thought index 
funds was the cl- the parent classification for mutual funds and ETFs. I think I mean they also talked about mutual funds in that that video. Uh, I think you're right about mutual funds. I just don't have it written down in my notes here. I just okay. I just focused on index versus uh, ETFs. Okay. ETFs are basically the same, but they're a little different. They represent the same chunk of assets. It's just a different product that you're buying and selling. And they were created by Vanguard, I believe. Uh, I do recall it saying that, but I don't off the top of my head. And that's all I got about diversification. I think it makes well, sense to me. It's pretty straightforward. As we transition out of diversification, I think with mentioning these ETFs, I think uh, the author, Dr. K, is hinting to us that this uh, investment vehicle, ETFs, is not perhaps as secure as we would like it to be. And what he points at as an indication for that is in the same way that mortgages, being a somewhat real asset based off of real estate, and um, their derivative mortgage-backed securities, it, it ended up being that the derivatives market was multiple times larger in trading volume and value than the underlying security and how that led that issue with leveraging uh, led to a destabilization of the market and, and that and not only the housing market but it spread to the other the whole financial sector i think that's what he's hinting at with these etfs as well i think he's saying that um something like spy the four, like the S and P five hundred, that the the biggest traded fund in the entire world, SPY, which is an ETF that tracks the top five hundred American companies. Um, if the derivative market is larger for that, so if the options, the the calls and the puts, are larger than the underlying companies that support that portfolio then we're in this potentially the same risky situation as we were with the housing crisis. So what's happening is that a lot of people have various retirement accounts. You have a Roth IRA, you have a 401k, you put money in it, and then whoever manages it, Fidelity, TD, Vanguard, Ally, whoever's managing it, uh, you don't know. You just put money in, then you're like, okay, I'm going to get some growth. Uh, and part of the stability of that retirement account is going to come from, from something like a SPY, a Fortune 500 ETF. Now, if the market for uh, derivatives for ETFs collapses, then that could, in, similarly to how the housing market crashed based off of the housing market derivatives failing, then a bunch of people's retirements could be truly negatively affected because of how these retirement accounts are based off of large, a lot of it is based off the stock market and the funds that are packaged together, even the bond funds. So I'm confused as to what value options provide to the system. Options are a bet. Options are just a bet. There's no fundamental value that they're being argued to provide. Um, So the way an option works is that you would like you, you are trying and they are used a lot to hedge a long position so they're a short position i think is how they're classified so one of the values that they can provide is a, a sort of insurance 
So you're saying, I want to make sure that I gain profit off of this company. I bet this company is going to do well over the long term. However, if it falls in price very steeply, or, or and then I want to be able to recover some of my investment. And the way I can do that is I can pay a principal. Uh, and so the, 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 the technical way that a option works is that you're paying a sort of a down payment, a principal on the option to be able to buy a hundred shares of that company, but you're buying those hundred shares at a fraction of what they would actually cost. So uh, you are potentially losing all of the money down to be able to buy those shares at a, a better price to be able to make a profit if that option goes in the direction that you're betting. Um, and, so that, so, and so it's a form of leveraging. If the option, because you've got other contributing factors, you've got a time frame that's a very important in the analysis of the option. Uh, the shorter the time frame, the uh, cheaper the option, because the higher the risk, and therefore the higher the reward. And then the longer the option, the more that that um, contingency could occur, and therefore the more expensive it's going to be on a per share basis. But it's leveraged because you have to do this on 100 shares at a time. The discount is that you're promising to buy them at 100 at mm -hmm. a time. Yeah, I can see how uh, it's leveraged. So I'm looking at this. I Googled it. I'm cheating. Um, <laughs> and this this answer on this this money exchange money doc stack exchange website. They uh, options allow placing bets to hedge or speculate on non-linear risks. They can be viewed as a type of insurance market. So, for example, protective puts are useful beca because they prevent the possibility of large losses that may be worth slightly reducing gains. Of course, the price has to be sufficient to induce someone to write the put. Where generally people may want to hedge, may want to hedge or speculate on virtually any uncertain economic or sociopolitical outcome that affects their livelihoods approaching the ideal of a complete market. Options are one building block of a complete market because almost any payoff profile shape as a function of a security or index can be constructed from them. So I think the the options also allow speculators to basically speculators to ensure provide some sort of assurance to the market. So we were talking just now about the, the positive role that speculators play and that they mm -hmm. provide temporary liquidity to the market. Um, and it offers stability. So perhaps they're offering stability to the market by betting on the options. Yeah. They, by betting on the market through purchase and buying and selling they, of options. They are definitely, I think, providing a stabilizing force when they are taking a short position that is contrary to their long position. So if they say, say they have 100 shares of Apple going up and they say, okay, well, in case Apple like really fucks up and has a big decline, then I want to buy this uh, one option, this one put option that it's going to go down and be able to mitigate some of that loss. I think that is a good stabilizing factor. However, what has happened now is that the buying and trading of the options now out, out overshadows and overwhelms the actual ownership of the equity itself. Does that not offer, is that bad? I guess it's maybe just, this this whole this whole uh, book is about a, how that's bad. It's exactly the same as the CDOs 
and the synthetic CDOs and how that created higher volatility and less stabilization to the housing market. Hmm. And it's, it's worse because the housing market's just one little very important sector, whereas the, these um, derivatives markets for the, for, for the uh, stock market encapsulate every single business that's publicly traded. So it's, it's a bigger market than real estate. Okay, so I just Googled how big is the derivatives market, and it's saying that this website, Vestapedia, often estimated at over $1 quadrillion on the high end. <laughs> what? I didn't even know we were throwing around that number. Okay, the higher end of the estimates includes the notional value of derivative contracts. There's a large difference in the notional value and actual netted value of derivatives, 600 trillion versus 12.4 trillion as of 2021. Yeah. So, the so it sounds like nobody knows what's going on. Yeah, and it's increasing in volume and, um, and supposed values being traded, but it's just people swapping pieces of paper back and forth, essentially. Like, and, you know, yeah, and volume is not indicative of the value of the underlying assets. Volume of or trade. liquidity. Right, liquidity. Yeah, it doesn't. So there's, in the real world, there's real assets, but all that's being traded is ideas that are based off of what the real assets are. And then, um, if that confidence in that system falls, then people are going to want to cash in their real assets. Mm -hmm. And 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 just like with this, like the oil rig and the insurance for Lloyd's, was Lloyd's. Um, Think so. Just how there's there's nothing there except the debt. Um, the whole thing kind of can fall apart. So, right. the best hedge against that, I believe, is to minimize your debt when you're buying options. In general, I mean, because now what's happening is that these these options and derivatives markets have have grown cancerously over the entire economy not just a single sector like housing and look how bad the housing market failure affected the entire market and so um, because the government is incentivizing the moral hazard by bailing them out by doing this when they're doing this options trading um, it, the caveat emptor is when they start going bust for them to be able to finance all of their obligations to these options because that's another thing some of these options aren't just that um, you pay something down in the hopes that it's going to go in your way some of these options force you to buy the option at a later date so it again increases how much it's leveraged by increasing um, it, it increases the reward by increasing the risk of saying of forcing you to have to cash in on these 100 shares. So you borrow the shares and then you um, instantaneously buy and sell them. Um, however, if there's no demand for anybody else, you're still obligated to buy them. You just can't sell them. And so that's what happened with GameStop. And I, it'd be really worthwhile going into the GameStop. And so it was, it was the, the short squeeze that Reddit did on GameStop had to do with forcing these big hedge firms to buy, to, to, um, to follow up with their obligation to buy shares of 
leveraged GameStop stock at a price that was unsustainable for them, the businesses, and uh, we would have made them go out of business if the regula regulators hadn't stepped in. And that's exactly what will happen if the derivatives markets for uh, the entire stock market fall apart. Something like the ETFs. What's going to happen is anybody who has debt is suddenly going to have the uh, debtor knocking on the door saying, pay up, because it's going to be a whole string of debt being called in, you know, and, um, oh, and I see. yeah. That's, so if the, if the, if the, they're basically buying options that make them buy the stocks if the price goes up, but they were, they bought the options with the assumption that the price of the asset would not increase so much. And the Reddit squad basement dwellers bought so much of the GameStop stocks that it pushed the price up and it kept a continuous, you know, it drove the stock up even more because all the options were being exercised and it put some, I guess some hedge funds out of business because they went bankrupt because they, they spent so much money on the options that they had basically yeah, called the, them on their bet. The theoretically it should, it should have gone even higher. But what happened was the regulators stepped in because they were receiving pressure from the big hedge firms and investment companies saying like, they're going to make us all go out of business if you let them do this. And so what happened was Robinhood got shut down or stopped trading yeah, on yes, certain assets. Right. And not only Robinhood, but other companies as you well. Know, yeah, that did happen. I stopped using Robinhood because of that. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't, I didn't even own any stocks, but I, I jumped on that bandwagon. I deleted my so, app of Robinhood and they felt that so, $200 investment I mean, go away. The taxman is going to come around at some point. I think, so again, sorry, bringing it back to doom and gloom here at the end of this uh, diversification section. But I think that's what Dr. K is indicating is like, that you don't know where the money that you're putting into your retirement fund is actually going. Where it's actually going is, these, is the derivatives market, which is unstable, which is going to cave in, and then you're not going to have any retirement. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know where my investment in my 401k is, is going. I have like a, I have like a low, medium, high risk profile that I can spend mm -hmm. my retirement money in. It'd be interesting to see how they describe that portfolio allocation. Because they've you got want a report to describe it to you. I mean, what's the, what, what constitutes that portfolio? I mean, they're going to say like, okay, it's twenty percent bonds. Um, or, or whatever, depending on how high risk it is. And then maybe if it's 20% um, bonds, maybe it's 10% of another conservative kind of investment, and then it'll be 70% stocks and equities. But we could... So while you're pulling that up, let me transition out of diversification here. We're going to transition into the leverage section and the leverage section has to basically do by increasing the idea is that by increasing the risk you increase the reward and um, part of the way that you do that is when there is a loan for there to be part of a loan you have to buy into that loan and, and that's called sort of the equ equity that's it. and so if you're buying investment property that might be 20 percent down on the house on that mortgage loan um and and so 
the author is arguing that there have been proofs. Uh, one of the famous one is the Nadigliani-Miller theorem, and it shows how just by restructuring how much risk there is and how much more leverage something it is uh, doesn't. Act, sorry, restructuring how much equity goes into something versus how much debt there is does not reduce the risk. So there, there were some arguments of, of how being able to shuffle around different forms of loans could improve risk management, right? That's the whole idea of these CDOs and the, the credit default swaps. You're, the, the underlying asset is a loan. And so they're saying that by restructuring them mm -hmm. and, uh, and then putting them in label, layers of priority of how they get paid off, those are the tranches, that they were better able to manage the risk here, Kay is pointing to this theorem that shows a calculation that uh, the net risk is not reduced. It's just moved around. Right. Yeah, I have that same note. So they, uh, Don Cohn, I think that's his name, um, said that the Greenspan doctrine allowed institutions to slice and dice their risk profiles and therefore choose them more precisely. But Dr. K is saying, no, that doesn't add any value. It does not de-risk the portfolio at all if you just rearrange your your loans. And right. his, his direct quote from the book says, the, Dr. K's quote is, there was no alchemy through which a collection of loans on weak security to unreliable borrowers could be anything other than just that. So Don Cohn, um, I forget what he, I think he was a CFO of one of the financial institutions, said yes. he was basically trying to put makeup on a pig. Yep. and B, make it complex. Like what I'm doing is complex and you wouldn't understand it. And this is the reason why it's good. It's to slice and dice our risk profiles and let us choose them more precisely. But it doesn't change the fact that they have a collection of loans on weak security to unreliable borrowers, which was destined to fail. So again, intermediary, bad intermediary, making it more complex than it needs to be. Yep. And I wrote and, and uh, Dan Staffel, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, they're, basically, they're basically trying to make value out of nothing, create yeah. value out of nothing. And you can't do that. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, but if you can fool people into buying into your product, if you can fool people to buy a lemon of a used car, then you're going to make profit. You're not adding more value to the system as a whole. In fact, you're adding inefficiency. But right. you in the short term are making a profit. You're extracting value. So, but before we talk more, I, I have a lot of notes here too for this one, but uh, okay. I just pulled up my, my retirement account. Yeah. I'm 37% invested in foreign stock, 60% invested in domestic stock, and then 1% in cash, um, and then some other less than a percent in bond, less than a percent in foreign bonds. So there's not very many options, I guess. None, no right. options, it, I guess. It's mostly stock. So hard assets. Yeah, if it's if it's just the stock itself. Um, however, with the trading of the derivatives outpacing the, the stock itself, it makes everything more volatile and unstable. So potentially, I mean, because the retirement right. it's account, less it's less risky by investing in the stocks, but it's still going to be impacted <clears throat> by by a. Bad, bad, bad crash caused by derivatives trading. Yeah, and and part of it could be that 
um, everybody tries to dump these ETFs. If everybody's, because it, it says stock, but is it, does that mean that it is that stock directly or is it something that is a portfolio of stocks like an ETF? I would be surprised if these invest, this particular retirement fund of yours didn't have some kind of ETF. And in fact, maybe the majority of these stocks are really through these bundles of ETFs. And if people lost faith in the ETFs because uh, the organizations that put them together are the same organizations that were doing derivatives trading, then people could want to dump the ETFs because they felt like they didn't actually represent ownership of the underlying asset. Or yeah, you're right. It's a 57% uh, in a Russell 1000 index. 35% in ACWI XUS IMI index. And then developed REIT index. So indexes is where it's located. Right. right. And then if for whatever reason those indexes were to fail, maybe because the firms that provide them fail because they're over leveraged, what the fuck does that do to your retirement? So is index not actually representative of the stocks? What is an index fund? I think I think what it is is it's a pool. Like so, in theory, that is it's something a type that of is ETF. issued. So the the index or the ETF is issued by the firm that owns a pool of the actual stocks. Um, so it's they're backing they're backed by the stocks, but it, it's a it's a layer of intermediation, I believe. Right. So I the mean, stocks you, are they, actually yeah. owned. And the alter, yeah, the alternative is that you can directly invest in all in all of those stocks. Yeah. Yourself. Yeah. But you could, or you could buy this index fund, and I guess take on the risk of something happening to index funds that or wouldn't happen the to the assets if you own them directly. That would add risk. The, right. Or to the particular organization that that uh, issues that particular fund, and. So the whole organization could go belly up if they're engaged in other derivatives tradings. And then that particular fund, they could, they could to be able to uh, offset any losses, they could sell a bunch of the underlying stocks that constitute the funds. And then that would flood the market with supply and that would decrease the demand. So that would lower, that would start a train of lowering the price and so then everybody would just start selling those underlying assets, devaluing the ETFs. And then uh, everything that was supposed to be, con be constituting your retirement portfolio is now worthless. So there's no escape. <clears throat> I mean, that's the, that's, By holding that's the hard theory. assets is a way to mitigate that. Actually owning the asset. Owning the house. Owning the yeah. company. Yeah. Being less leveraged. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, even if you owned, I mean, you're not leveraged if you own the index fund. I don't think it's a, a, a matter of being leveraged. I think it's owning certain assets yeah. that aren't subject to volatility like index funds, even though they're, I mean, but, they're not really subject to very much volatility. But you're saying in this catastrophic scenario, index funds, you, you won't be able to reduce your losses with index funds or the stocks because they're tied right. together. I mean, arguably 
it's not a real asset. I don't even know if a stock is considered a real asset. Um, oh yeah, they're considered it, assets. But a real asset? Well, what's a real asset? Right, I don't know the definition of a real asset. Real estate is a real asset. I think gold is a real asset, a physical good, I believe. Oh, okay, I, there I is could... a difference. Stocks are financial assets, not real assets. Yeah. A financial asset is a liquid asset that gets its value from a contractual right or ownership claim. Right. So, so there's this information agreement that you own a percentage of the company if you own a stock. Yeah. Okay. Real assets are named real because they can usually be seen or touched. Makes sense. Yeah. So I think um, part of the way to hedge against a big market catastrophe is to own as much real unleveraged assets as you can. Mm -hmm. Buy a bunker. As many bunkers it, as you can. Fill it with gold. Exactly. Or uh, profi profitable companies. <laughs> Those are also real assets. Okay. All right. So tan staffle. There's no such thing as a, fre as a free lunch. Robert there is a Heinlein. such thing as a fresh lunch. Just not a free one. <laughs> So, uh, so one of the concepts he talked about in this part of the chapter was um, the highly probable low gain scenarios versus the lowly probable high loss scenarios. And so they, all of the financial products, the CDOs and the, for the mortgages was a uh, low, highly probable low gain product. And then yes. there was there was a very low probability of it being a high loss. Of high loss, yes. And then it's kind of like, um, I don't know, there's a very low probability of a hurricane happening. And uh, of, of a hurricane hitting a specific location. A very low probability. Yeah, maybe that's a bad scenario to. to no, it's, you're right. No, there's there's a very. What would be the what would be the highly probable low risk scenario? So, so the highly probable low gain scenario for living at the beach. I guess not paying, near, not paying insurance. Say, say insurance, paying insurance versus not paying insurance. Um, I'm not following that one. So, if you don't pay but, insurance, it's a very uh, low probability of a hurricane hitting you and not you not being able to get money to lost. yeah to mitigate right, so your loss. So, not paying the insurance is a high probability of having a little bit more money. Yes. Yeah. 100%. And I think he, I mean, he gives a better um, story in his book. You keep going back to the hurricanes. <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> I don't know why. It applies. I mean, there's a lot of parallels. It does. But it we, does. We, we planted the seed in like five episodes. Our new goes, logo. Always comes back. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so the, the analogy that he used was tailgating phenomenon when you tailgate someone with the hope of getting them to move over to allow you're you to not pass. drinking beer at a football game the, the kind of tailgating where you're driving really close behind somebody yeah yeah that tailgating thank you for that clarification you live in gainesville you live in a college town so it's very prevalent there yes so so when you tailgate someone with the hopes of getting them to move over to allow you to pass you have a high probability of getting to your destination in a slightly shorter amount of time you also have a low probability of causing causing an accident since the tailgating makes it more difficult for the driver to avoid an obstacle obstacle or compensate for the other driver's sudden movements. Mm -hmm. So most traffic authorities believe that the costs and consequences of accidents that follow tailgating 
exceed the benefits to successful tailgaters. This might be the case if research was somehow performed, proving the risk profile indicates that it is better to not tailgate. Even then, successful tailgaters would think the results of the general population does not apply to them, since they are more skillful than the rest of the drivers. And maybe sometimes they're right. And maybe sometimes they're right, but it, they... So I'll read again. The successful tailgaters would think the results of the general population does not apply to them. So think of uh, these financial product creators. Mm-hmm. They're like this this low, highly probable low gain product is never going to fail. And if it does fail, I'm going to avoid the losses because I know better than the general population. Yeah. And then he, he goes into something else called the the winner's curse. Owners of assets are much more likely to be people who have overestimated their value than the people who have underestimated them. So usually the people, so if you think about it, people are selling an asset, say a stock, and it goes to the highest bidder. So it literally goes to the person that was willing to pay the most for that thing. And so it's right. always the people that are willing overvalue to pay the most, it. overvalue it, more likely to overvalue the asset. Or, right. Who value it the most and who may overvalue it. That gets stuck with the asset when things go sideways. Yeah. I think so, that, uh, it, I, it, that, that is a bit, there was a bit of a uh, revelation to me that w- when you own an asset, it's because you valued it more than anybody else. I mean, that makes sense just straight up. But then uh, as far as the winner's curse, you could be left owning things that are you paid way too much for. Uh, you could have stocked up on a bunch of beanie babies and then all of a sudden everybody gets tired of beanie babies and all they are worth is the cloth they're made out of. Right. Or bitcoins. <laughs> or bitcoins. Or any, any, any cryptocurrency. So I had a note here. Because uh, Dr. K is talking about how people don't know how to manage the high probability, low gain, low probability, high loss situations. And he said that those who tried to predict these and, and express these uh, kinds of situations or um, vehicles often find it difficult to express it or don't find a receptive audience. And then he went and transitioned into talking about Nicholas Nassim Taleb, who describes this phenomena in a book called fooled by randomness, which is related to how people on Wall Street don't make uh, accurate predictions about how things are actually going to go. There's, you can't, there's no, no individual with any skill, reliable skill and predictability can bet on, um, bet on the outcome of any given stock. And so the follow-up book, to Nicholas Nassim Taleb's Fooled by Randomness is called Black Swan. And Black Swan's subtitle is The Impact of the Highly Improbable. And the Black Swan concept comes from a philosophical debate that took place in Europe, and I I think around the 1500s, which um, had a lot to do with, I think, faith and theology, which is you put forth a proposition in um, the dialectic philosophy and you can build syllogism, you can build um, logic off of the initial assumption or proposition. And so you might have a proposition that says all swans are white. 
and you might be able to build a very coherent framework based off of that initial assumption. However, if you have, say, a lot of derivative logic based on a faulty proposition, all you need is one black swan to upend your entire theory that's based off of the proposition that all swans are white. And so in Europe, during this time frame, every observable swan was white. And so there was this theoretical back and forth, which I think had ramifications for the argument for faith, which is um, all it takes is one observation of the miraculous to disprove a purely rational uh, material-based framework. And, um, and so there, people were going back and forth using the analogy of the swan. Well, a hundred years later, they discovered Australia where there's black swans. And so the whole argument was completely thrown out the window because you could no longer use that proposition of white swans because in fact, not all swans were white. Uh, and so it was sort of like a real world realization of a theoretical argument. Now, um, it's funny because according to how Taleb frames a black swan, this argument regarding black swans wasn't actually a black swan. So uh, according to Taleb, a black swan event is something that is highly significant because of how unpredictable it is. Because our entire framework is built upon this not happening, basically, when it does happen, it upends everything. So if I knew that I was going to get in a car crash when I leave here today, when I leave the office and drive home, I wouldn't get in the car. But I don't know whether or not I'm going to get in a car accident. So I keep getting in the car and I keep raising the probability that eventually I'm going to be in a car accident. And so I, uh, I derived from Taleb's discussion of the black swans, a, um, a matrix of what are the different kinds of swans, what are the different areas of knowledge. And this it, uh, taps into Donald Rumsfeld's known knowns and known unknowns. Hunter, do you mind bringing up that uh, grid that we developed, the quadrant? There we go. And now I'm sharing here. Cool, how do I make this big? Here we go. All right, so for the YouTube viewers, you'll be able to see this quadrant but I'll describe it for just the listeners. On one axis, you have that which is observable. And then on the other axis, you have that which is comprehensible. So something can be observable or it can be unobservable. Something can be comprehensible or it can be incomprehensible or say unpredictable. So in the quadrant that of, of things that are both observable and comprehensive, we have the white swan. This is something that is seen and understood. It's, it's observed, it's understandable. In Europe, everybody could see the white swan, it was obvious. And then uh, opposite the white swan, you have that which is unobservable and incomprehensible. It is unknown and unimaginable. And that's what a true black swan is. It's, it's, it's something, it's an unknown unknown, the Donald Rumsfeld speech. You've got no so is this and, is are you tying this back to the 
the leverage to leveraging? Yeah, because well, this has to do with people not being low, able low probable to, events happening and drastically changing the way we right run things. People not being able to manage these low probability, high impact events. Mm -hmm. Low probability, high impact events are are um, harder to observe and predict, but they have enormous significance. So something like an asteroid impact mm -hmm. is a, a, a low probability event on any day-to-day, -day, um, but a long enough time. Earthquake, tsunami. Yeah. But the, a lot of these phenomena are things that we can predict. We just, we're not observing them currently. So that's a gray swan. A gray swan is something that is unobservable yet comprehensible, unseen yet predictable. And so in reality, in this uh, Taleb black swan argument, the philosophers who could conceptualize of a different colored swan than the white ones that they could see, they had a theoretical, theoretical framework. So they would so be gray swans. So in reality, it'd be gray swans. The black, um, so in reality, the black swans are gray swans. Yeah. So Grace ones. right. In reality, we can't even begin to describe what a black swan is. Right. Um, and then my own owl twist on because because in in the book Black Swan, uh, the author Taleb talks about the white swans versus the black swans, and he even goes into the gray swans a little bit. He says if you have first principles, if you have a good understanding of the first principles, then you can extrapolate out potentialities and he his favorite example of that was Mandelbro and how uh, that very intelligent mathematician was able to create um, frameworks and formulas that branched out much further than what the initial concepts were and so he said by using that kind of thinking you can turn a black swan something that was before unobservable and unknown by, by building upon you know the correct logical framework, you can turn things into a gray swan so that there are more manageable impacts eventually. And then, so my owl twist on this is filling in the quadrant of that which is observable yet incomprehensible. It is present yet mysterious. And that is the ugly duckling. So we can see the bird but we don't know what it is. And something akin to that is like a magic trick. You, you observe the magic trick, but you don't understand the underlying structure of how that came to be. And so that's the, okay. yeah. I like it. That's uh, so the, I, so I, that's totally cold to me. I have not read this book and uh, you briefly explained to me enough with enough detail for me to create the, the, this chart for you because I was sharing the screen. Um, yeah. So do they have, so I have a few questions. Do they have this four by four in the book already? And do they no. use, they use the terms white swan, gray swan, black swan. And yes, he, he does, I guess. He does use the terms white, black, and gray swan, um, but he doesn't label them with the, uh, the uh, variable or the descriptor observable versus comprehensible. Mm -hmm. Um, putting those descriptors on it and extrapolating out a fourth quadrant of the ugly duckling are 
my my own little gotcha. Invention. So you should patent it. Get a trademark on your on this uh, Al's interpretation. <laughs> so I like it. I like so it's a framework for understanding observable and comprehensible events, mm-hmm. and it's relevant mm-hmm. to our discussion about Chapter Three of and of other people's money because in the financial world, people have a hard time. I think he said this particularly accountants. They have a hard time capturing the value of a very um, low probable high loss event. Right. They, they have a, they, they don't have. It's very hard to articulate that in the balance sheet and and in assets and, and liabilities and all that. Um, so, and so if you look at this, this is a way to under, put perspective on those types of events. It's a framework for understanding those types of events. And and part of the takeaway could potentially be. If we understand the first principles of finance and we understand how certain chains of events have a certain outcome, then we can say that the situation that happened with mortgages and mortgage-backed securities leading to a financial crisis are the same parameters that could lead to a much larger crisis based off of a much larger market for uh derivatives like ETFs and options that are based on the stock market. And because, and, and what's at stake is everybody's retirement. Well, not only their retirement, but um, think something as dear as in a retirement account could go belly up. In addition to uh, everybody, a mass loss and businesses going out all across the, a whole bunch of businesses going out, people losing jobs, uh, debt being called in, and a whole bunch of things going belly up. It's, that's the gray swan of what John Kay is potentially talking about. Right. And that, so the, so I have a few quotes that I took from the book that ties to this uh, low, low probable, oh, what's the right way to phrase this? Lowly probable high risk scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, that would either be a black swan or a gray swan, depending on how you interpret it is yeah. uh and the quote I have is the uh, David Vinyar, the CFO of Goldman Sachs in 2007, um, said that his bank experienced 25 standard deviation events several days in a row. Right. So I don't know if you know what that means statistically or probabilistically. A no, 25 standard deviation is laughable. Like there's no such thing as a 25 standard deviation. So I, I, had, I had to pull up like what the probability was. Um, it'd, it'd be like uh, 10 zeros. It'd be like point zero. So, 10 so a seven sigma event, so standard de- the symbol for standard deviation is sigma. Uh, okay. I say a six sigma event is said to be expected every one billion days. <laughs> That's a six sigma. A seven <laughs> sigma is said to be expected 7.6 E11 days. So I think, what is that? 776 billion so days. Like, i think we're already outside so the right time of so universe, right? yeah so if a 25 standard deviation event yeah. happened several <laughs> days in a row the the gall that the guy had the, just the, the confidence yeah the confidence and the arrogance that he had to say that not alone happening once but in several days in a row and the fact that he's not like oh maybe the our understanding of the financial system is right, lacking. Maybe the model's wrong. Yeah, maybe the model's wrong. 
He just said, no, this it's not our fault. This event, this 25 standard deviation event happened several days in a row. That's why we failed. Not our misunderstanding of the models. Complete lack of responsibility yes. and accountability. Moral hazard, result of so much moral hazard for so long, the bank's bailing them out. And then and then the last quote of it he, that he included in the book, I don't think he wrote it, was, for all their superficial sophistication, the masters of the universe had no real understanding of what was going on before them. Right. I think it's, it's exactly what happened. And the, the arrogance is laughable. Yeah. And, we're and that's putting, what we get for having bad intermediaries. And, and we're putting, we're funding that arrogance by, and especially by bailing it out. Yes. You and I as taxpayers are funding this arrogance. What a positive, what a positive note. Well, that, that's the chapter and that is uh, 52 minutes into the second part of it. So I think we're at about three hours for this. About three hours again. (laughs) Oh, maybe we should split these up uh, or not. I don't know. I, I, you know, I say we release it all in one episode. I, I, that makes sense to me. And then people can, because when I listen to a Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson or Lex Friedman, sometimes they're quite long and then I can just pause it as I see fit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sounds good. Um, I'm pretty exhausted. So what, what, uh, any last remarks? (laughs) Let me just look at my notes real quick. I think it was a pretty good discussion. I was definitely more prepared for this one than I was the last two. And I think, uh, it was a more fruitful conversation, I think. Yeah. For me. I I think some of the takeaways here are to if if you think that it is a valid concern that um, things are over leveraged, then you want to minimize the amount that you are leveraged. You want to minimize the amount of debt that you have. Also, you want to try to increase uh, buy-in and increase skin in the game. And we want to make assessments based off of not other people's opinion necessarily, but our own independent analysis. And of course, like there's going to be some element of like, you know, we're standing a little bit taller because we're stood on the shoulders of giants. So we've got to gain information through other people, but we want to diversify our understanding by sampling from various sources, various uncorrelated independent sources and maybe um part of diversifying your assets means not giving your money to someone else to make more money but if you have a hobby or an interest in which you are able to ascertain the value of something maybe it, it, it's lego sets I, I think i've brought this up before uh, over 30 years specialty lego sets so say like a disney branded or a harry potter branded obviously that's not been around for 30 years but over 20 30 years these specialty lego sets appreciate more than gold so if you have a particular interest or knowledge base then you should leverage the knowledge and buy into that which you able are able to independently analyze and uh, I like that takeaway. Don't don't vote for Republicans and Democrats because they're making the situation worse. <laughs> yeah, I like I think the, I like your takeaway is very targeted towards individuals. 
I think my takeaways are more systematic, kind of like uh, assessment of the system that we're using. Mm-hmm. And I think the, I think as always, I think they, we should explore target, like explore using decentralized forms of organizations rather than centralized. And to me, as I was reading this, I was interpreting these intermediaries to be a centralized form of, of control for people that are interested in buying financial assets. So I think my takeaway is uh, be weary of people that hold all the power and, and relationships and don't have any, um, any liability to their actions. They're they not held accountable. Yeah, if they're not held accountable and if there's moral hazard there for the uh, the intermediaries, whoever's controlling the transaction or the relationship, then uh, I think that system is destined to fail at some point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think my other takeaway, maybe focusing on individuals, is uh, is look to add value and look to invest in things that add value that you understand. I think, I think Dr. K would be a fan of, um, of Warren Buffett's investment strategies. And and Dr. K is also, it sounds like a supporter of finding long-term relationships that you can build trust in. And, um, the best people to find are trustworthy are people who have skin in the game in whatever that industry is or, or that realm of knowledge. Yep. I like the idea. I like, let's do a takeaway next time and I'll spend some time thinking about the takeaway. I think we did all right this time. Yeah. I think we did pretty well. Yep. So I think, uh, I'm ready to go, man. Yeah. Okay. Before we we go, if you could on the shared screen, please bring up the website for MJ Dorian. So I, I reached out to one of my favorite podcasters whose name is MJ Dorian. And I highly suggest anybody who's interested in art and creativity to check out his podcast. He produces and edits, I believe, um, the podcast. He makes his own music for it. He does great sound design. And it's very high-quality content. I reached out to him and asked if he'd be interested in coming on to our podcast. And he responded positively. So maybe in January or February, we're going to have MJ Dorian on. I'm really excited for this dude. Um, we're going to link to, we can link in the show notes to some of this stuff. If anybody was interested in getting an idea of who he is and, uh, Hunter, you and I are probably going to have to review some of his content before we talk to him in person. What do you say? Yeah, most definitely. I'm excited to have him on. So he does music. He does, he have a podcast as well. Yes. Creative codex, creative codex, C O D E X. That that's his, uh, podcast on spotify correct okay check that out i don't see it referenced on his website so maybe in the show notes somewhere in the oh here we go here we go i missed it creative codex the story of creativity cool yeah so check it out so good oh man all right well we covered a lot of ground today (laughs) i think we did pretty well for ourselves yeah, that was a lot of conversation for 20 pages of a book. It's pretty deep stuff yeah. for me. Yeah, me too. I'm going to go eat something with some protein in it. All right. Well, that's it. Workout. Thanks, Thanks for tuning in. Peace yes, out. sir. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the episode. 
This is the appendix in which I want to dive into some ideas just a little bit more. I'm going to try to keep it short and sweet. So, first of all, thanks to Landon Fox for providing the music for this episode. You can find him on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash arbatos, A-R-B-A-T-O-S. Or you can search up Landon Fox Music. He's got a YouTube, he's got a Spotify, uh, and he's the one who provided the track for us. This track is called Bereaved. I like it. He's got a lot of great jams, so check him out. And as far as the episode itself, I wanted to talk about a few things that we sort of skimmed on the surface, we weren't sure about, and I wanted to clear things up. So first of all, the fractional reserve banking system, just to put some clarification on that. The, the fractional reserve banking system is a, a regulation that says a bank can loan out money and it has to keep a fraction of what it's loaning out as a reserve on hand. And it was, as we said in the episode, if you want to, if there's a 10% reserve requirement and you want to give out a $100,000 loan, then you have to keep uh, 10% of that $10,000 as a reserve in the bank itself. Now, that is no longer the case. That was the case for a long time, 100 years or more. And now... Well, let me just tell you exactly how the Fed puts it themselves. So, if you go to federalreserve.gov slash monetarypolicy slash reserve.req.htm, you can access this for yourself. Or you can just type in fractional reserve requirements and you'll be able to find it. So, on the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System government website, under monetary policy, under policy tools, the reserve requirements, and this is going to be a direct quote, as announced on March 15th, 2020, the board reduced reserve requirement ratios to 0% effective March 26, 2020. This action eliminated reserve requirements for all depository institutions, end quote. You can go on this page, you can see some of the history of reserve requirements and how there are some things that still have some level of reserve. Low reserve tranche, um, a tranche being a level or a, a sort of a hierarchy. There are some things that have reserve requirements, but by and large, they're at 0%. Uh, there's a couple things I want to bounce off with this. First of all, I contacted a friend of mine who is a banker, and I sent him a text, and he was texting back. We had a bit of a correspondence, and I'm just going to read, again, word for word, how our correspondence went. Me. So y'all can give out money for free? Him. You know that would never happen. Me. Then what does the 0% reserve requirement mean? Him. There were some old rules that banks and credit unions had to retain a certain amount of cash on hand in the branch. With everything moving to electronic transfers, the need for cash is greatly dis diminished. So we didn't need to keep a certain amount in our physical branch. We can determine what the business needs are for each branch and keep those amounts. Like, my branch probably has... $40 million in total deposits. I don't need to keep $4 million on hand. 
I can usually operate with a sufficient amount of about 10% of that. So 10% of 10% being 1%. That's just me commenting. I replied, where does the money come from if you make a loan? How are you penalized if you give out a loan that isn't repaid? Him, banks borrow from the Federal Reserve. We pay our members a decent return for large deposits. Your credit score will be negatively impacted and the bank could sue you. So I didn't know that a bank could have a credit score, but it makes sense. Businesses have credit scores. People have credit scores. I returned fire. I said, ah, so the Federal Reserve can give out money for free. What's to stop them from giving unfettered loans to their buddies on Wall Street or Capitol Hill? Him. Banks were getting money for near 0% from the government. That's how people got car loans at 2% and mortgages at 3%. The Federal Reserve, as I understand, can only lend to registered financial institutions. And that's pretty much where that aspect of our conversation ended. It's hard to know what to make of that as a layperson, that there are relatively few reserve requirements that the Federal Reserve can give out loans sort of as it sees fit, but I guess that's the system as it is. There's a lot more to dive into there. Uh, however, um, there is something that Hunter brought up in another conversation that he and I had, not on this podcast, which had to do with how the Federal Reserve is managing and creating money. So one of the measurements of the amount of money in circulation has to do with different kinds of money supplies. You've got M0, M1, M2, M3, and these are different measurements of uh, money. So M0 is, uh, and this is according to the wikipedia.org article having to do with money supply, M0 is a money supply measurement including notes and coins in circulation outside of Federal Reserve banks and the vaults of depository institutions. Now the M1 money supply is that and also traveler's checks or non-bank issuers. It's also demand deposits. It's also um, other checkable deposits at depository institutions and credit unions. And it's also savings deposits. So it's a lot of how the money, I guess, sort of gets created uh, from the Federal Reserve Bank's to the non-government oriented banks. Something, a very interesting note here is how much money we have put into circulation since the beginning of COVID. I'm going to link to another website, which is called FRED Economic Data. It's fred.stlouisfed.org. So it is economic research uh, related to one of the Federal Reserve Banks. It appears on this particular graph that I'm looking at, that is a measurement of the M1 money supply, that this measurement began in 1959. And in that time, we were looking in billions of dollars. There was 139 or so billion dollars in the M1 money supply. And then 
if you fast forward, say, 50-ish years to about 2010, there are, um, in billions of dollars, 1,660 billion dollars. Or another way of saying that is $1.6 trillion. And then, as we fast forward to the end of 2019, there's $4 trillion. So in the 10 years, it had quadrupled. Now, in the space of, let me see here, uh, one month or so, between March 2020 and May 2020, the money supply went from $4 trillion, almost exactly, up to $16.5 trillion. So it, it more than quadrupled. Now, the, as of this recording, the money supply peaked in about February 2020 at, uh, or maybe even March 20, 2022, sorry, um, at $20 trillion, $20.6 trillion. This graph is basically exponential. We've got over a 50, 60 year time period in which it took the money supply that long to uh, quadruple. Sorry, L let me say this a bit more intelligently. It, it took 50 years from 1950 to 2010 for the money to s supply to increase about tenfold, and then in 10 years from 20. 10 or sorry nine years 2010 to 2019 it quadrupled and then in the space of uh, a year or so if you want to even say that then it quintupled so in one year it we did what it took 10 years to do i know i'm going on and on about this it's probably pretty boring it's very significant though it here at the end of 2022 going into 2023 Everybody's talking about how bad inflation is, and it's a large part of that has to do with how much money has been put into the circulation. The increase in the money supply decreases purchasing power and increases the cost of goods. Anyway, that's something we could probably get into another time. So, so much for fractional reserve banking, money creation, and the money supply. One other thing that I'd like to touch upon has to do with mutual funds, index funds, and ETFs. So there's a little bit of confusion about that in our discussion. So um, I'm going to do a, rather, I'm going to take a quote here. Uh, it's, this is from investopedia.com. Uh, index fund versus ETF, what's the difference? And there is a quote here uh, from Will Thomas, a, a, a financial advisor of sorts. And he says, an index fund is a type of mutual fund that tracks a particular market index, for example, the S&P 500. Since there's no original strategy, not much active management is required, and so index funds have a lower cost structure than typical mutual funds. All, and then, going on, although they also hold a basket of assets, ETFs are more akin to equities than to mutual funds. Listed on market exchanges, just like individual stocks, they are highly liquid. They can be bought and sold like stocks throughout the trading day. So most mutual funds are sort of 
settled at the end of the trading day, whereas ETFs are traded throughout the day. And index funds, like Hunter said, are a form of mutual fund. That's the big difference there. And that's about all I have to say in this appendix. Again, big thanks to Landon Fox for letting us use his music. We are hopefully moving forward going to have a discussion with MJ Dorian, the guy who is the creator of the podcast Creative Codex. That Codex is C-O-D-E-X. You can listen to him wherever you can find podcasts. I'm going to link to him again. And thank you very much for making it this far through all of our episodes. And we look forward to further reviews of other people's money and other discussions. Thank you very much.